Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, the podcast is back. It is officially back. Uh, This is going to be weekly for a while. And so um, spread the word around, rate and review the show, uh, follow us on the socials. It's not me running any of it, but uh, we do post new episodes. Make sure you're subscribed in the feeds that you listen to this show. Um, And I have a bunch of other shows as well that you can find most of them in the TOFOP feed. So T-O-F-O-P. Uh, There is an AFL adjacent podcast called Two Guys, One Cup, which is exclusive to the listener app. So uh, listener is free. You just have to sign up there and you can have a listen to that. And at the moment on the TOEFOP feed, uh, if you go to TOEFOP, there is a little side series spinoff around both the World Test Championships and the Ashes happening in England. If you are in any way interested in Australian test cricket, uh, there is a fan podcast. Two Guys, One Earn is the name of it. Mark Howie Howard, my childhood friend and host of the Howie Games, was the first episode. The second episode after Australia won the World Test Championships is up now with my former Triple J Breakfast co-host, Adam Spencer. Very fun to just sit and talk cricket and have a laugh about cricket with Adam Spencer. So two guys, one earn is what you look for, and you can find that on the TOEFOP feed. So patreon.com slash TOEFOP. If you want to support this podcast financially or otherwise, you can just go to tofop.com or just tofop in your regular podcast feed and find all the other podcasts that we do and support them there. Um, as I said, leaving a comment down the bottom or uh, you know sharing it around, telling other people that it's back, all those things that you can do for free can help the podcast and I super appreciate when people do that. Um, also, if you want to support me, uh, there are a bunch of other ways to do that. Uh, one of them is to buy my book. It is called I Am Not Fine, Thanks. It is available in all the fine places that you can buy books. There's also an audio copy of that book uh, if you want to hear it in my voice. And uh, I am on tour, still touring around Australia at the moment. Uh, so I still have some shows in Townsville, the Sutherland Shire, Glenelg, Wyong and Airlie Beach that are in the diary. So comedy.com.au, if you want to come and see me in any of those places, I would love to see you at one of those shows. Uh, Some free things that you can do that don't cost you money that also help support me. ABC iView, you can watch last year's show. It's called We're Logical. Um, So um, if you go on there and you can watch that for free, if you'd like to have a look at that. And of course, Gruen, my television program, Gruen is now back. Uh, So you can catch that Wednesday nights at 8.30 on ABC TV, or you can catch it weekly on ABC iView. Old episodes of Question Everything still up on ABC iViewers as well. So if you like this show, if you would like to support this show, if you would like this show to continue, uh, as it is going to do for a while, uh, then those are some ways that you can help it continue. And I hope you very much enjoy this episode today with Cameron James. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the podcast starts. I ask my guest who they are. So um, who are you? I'm Cameron James and I'm a comedian and uh, I'm just going to say comedian. I think that's, (laughs) (laughs) I actually like comedian um, better than all the other possible titles you could give yourself in this. Do Do you just feel comfortable with comedian rather than saying and a writer, and a podcaster, and a host. I feel 
incredibly awkward when anybody <laughs> starts to list out all the other things I do Doesn't because <laughs> it, it, they feel shameful to me. <laughs> Even the things that are successful, I'm like, look at you. Look at you. you weren't good yeah. enough at just being a comedian. You had to do all these other things as well. You disgust yeah. me. Well, I think that's what's good about the title yeah. comedian because it does cover implicitly all those other things yeah. that you can do under that umbrella. Writing, acting, whatever. Well, that, that was always the thing for me, for sure. Mm. Like, I, yeah, I like if I'm filling in a form and they ask what I do, I mm. always put comedian. Mm. And that's the way that I've always thought about those projects. I've never yep. thought about myself as someone who makes television. Like, we've mm. made television together, you and I. And yeah. Often I, I just always think of myself as like a comedian who's on a TV show. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Yeah. I, th- I try to think about that too. Um, no matter what, I'm, I don't do... I'm generally brought in as a writer on things quite a bit, and um, I think I can write, but I generally think I'm a comedian who has a writing job. That's right. Yeah. You're a comedian who can write stuff down. <laughs> yeah, I can write type. <laughs> uh, okay, so comedian's good, and I like yeah. that you hesitated a little about, because you were going to add some, some other mm. things in, and mm. that's interesting to me, because you are, like, I think... I mean, as most people, you know, like of your generation, like yeah, down, like younger will will be, is you have to be masters of a whole bunch of different things because yeah. the way the industry is now. Well, I mean, let, what's your perspective on if you look at the mm. career of a comedian now? Mm-hmm. This is what you've chosen to do with your life. <laughs> yeah, like what what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> what do you think you're doing? That's a great question, <laughs> isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, first of all, I want to correct you because you said you have to be masters of a lot of different things. I don't think that's true. I think you have to be a jack of all you're trades. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe a master, a master of, none. of none. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe if you're lucky, you can kind of master one of those trades. Mm-hmm. And then the other things are just supplementary. So the way I see it is when I was when I was younger and watching comedy, and even when I was just about to start comedy, Comedians were stand-ups who sometimes got to be on TV and do stand-up, and sometimes they even got to host TV shows like you do. Um, But then almost, maybe I just wasn't even across it, but by the time I started, I kind of looked around and was like, actually, there's nowhere to do stand-up on television anymore. There are no spots. There's only a few shows you can host. So what the hell else can you do? You've got to start a podcast. You've got to uh, maybe try and be a writer. Maybe you can try and be an actor as well. Um, Maybe you can write for some online publications or something. Um, And I reckon I've tried every single thing you can try in comedy and failed most of it. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least done mediocre at most of it. Well, I guess... There is, I mean, most of us are mediocre. Yeah. That's the truth. There are very few moments of genuine exceptionalism, right, Mm. when it comes to any of these things. So, of course, most Mm. of the time we're all doing, you know, a (laughs) mediocre job and occasionally we manage to (laughs) be a little bit more than mediocre, which I think is good. But So tell people then, because your story, tell if people are Mm. hearing about Cam James for the first time, like you talk about the idea of when you found yourself, you know, coming to comedy, but what... What what was before that? Like, mm. where where did you grow up? I'm asking you questions, obviously, that I know some of the answers <laughs> yeah, to, sure, but sure. that's the way a podcast works, Cam. Of course, <laughs> so, of course. Uh, tell me a little bit about your story. Well, I grew up in Newcastle, uh, New South Wales, mm. one of the great uh, places on planet Earth. I actually fucking love Newcastle. Me too. Beautiful place. No argument here. But growing up, I didn't love it, I reckon. It took me a long time to come around to, actually, it probably took leaving 
to then all of a sudden be able to look back and go, I was so lucky to grow up where I grew up and to live near the beach and to live in a very laid back place that felt like a small town, even though it's only two hours from Sydney. Um, But I guess the reason I bring that up is because there was no sense of like show business or anything anywhere near Newcastle. All we really had was the Newcastle Knights, who were superstars and still are. Rugby league team. Rugby league team, yeah. So I'd see Paul Harrigan around or whatever, and I'd be like, wow, that's a celebrity. Silverchair are from there, and the Screaming Jets are from there. And yeah, so I didn't really even think about being a comedian until I, until I left Newcastle. Like for me, when I was at home, I wanted to be a musician. You know about all this stuff. I've talked about it. And I've done a show about it. But, um, yeah, my my dad was a drummer in a covers band and my mum played guitar and sang in the church band and um, my brother played drums. And so it just seemed like music was potentially an avenue to some sort of, I don't know, uh, something bigger than yourself or something close to success or showbiz or fame or whatever the fuck you're chasing. Right. It's, I mean, an often outlet. it's an outlet. Mm. Yeah. And or maybe even a way out. Maybe right? a way out. Yeah. Maybe a way out. Because this is what you see so often internationally. People in, and I'm not suggesting this was your circumstance, but mm. anywhere that isn't like a major city or where the level of aspiration feels like it has a cap, that mm. it's normally the arts, education, sports that will yeah. transcend that and totally. give people an opportunity. So you're talking about the <laughs> you know, the guys who play for the rugby league team. You're yeah. talking about, you know, the people who are in bands when you frame this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of like really well credentialed scientists and I'm sure there are. I don't know them. Stuff from Newcastle, but <laughs> no, I don't know them. You can't name them. No, I know Mark Richards, the surfer. I know all the footy players and I know the six musicians that made it out. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I guess that's what I wanted to be. But then uh, prob- actually quite similar to you and your backstory, um, I also gravitated towards writing and journalism as well because that seemed close to something, I don't know, close to being a writer mm-hmm. or being a, I don't know, a great thinker. <laughs> or you get your name in the paper, you know. So, yeah, I, sure. so yeah, r- music was my main focus. And then when I f- tried and failed that, I gravitated towards journalism and tried to be a writer through mm-hmm. that path. So, so when you say... Um, tried to be a writer. What, what did that mm. actually mean to you? Like when mm. you thought of journalism and how what role writing played in journalism, mm. because this is one of the grand mistakes that people make, which is you're good <laughs> at writing, you should yeah. be a journalist, when like 95% of the job of a journalist is not writing the stuff. Like the writing it down true. at the end yeah. is... You've got to do so much other shit before you can get to the bit where you can just write it down at the end. I know. That's the bit I was no good at. I was good at writing it down at the end. It was yeah. just all the asking questions of people and being able to evaluate their answers. Which is interesting because you're very good at asking questions and listening. You're very good at listening to people and uh, engaging on a way that, you know, draws things out of people. Yeah, if I've got two hours. If you've got two hours. But if you've got 10 minutes with someone up the road and you're sitting in their living room, yeah. maybe it's a bit difficult. But also the questions that I want to ask mm. aren't the questions that, like, <laughs> in that situation they want you to ask. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, they're like, hey, did you go and talk to the treasurer today about the, you know, <laughs> yeah. the budget? And I said, yeah, I asked him what happens when you die. <laughs> he had some really interesting thoughts, i got to be honest with you. <laughs> well, we can't publish any of this, Will. <laughs> <laughs> but it's compelling, right? 
right? Like, yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there was that. But also, I, I, here's the thing that I'm not good at, which is a big, like, part of journalism is mm. I think that I'm not very good at telling if somebody is lying to me or not. Mm, interesting. You don't, you don't have an instinct for that? I reckon everyone thinks they do. I think yeah. that some people may. Mm. I think that most people who say they do probably don't. Yeah. And I th- don't think that I do. And you probably, most of us are raised in some sort of polite society. Mm. So you don't want to think people are lying to you often. You kind of avoid, you ignore the red flags. You know? I mean, I'll go a step further, which is I think, you know, where it is for me and why this was like a confronting thing for me is I often... If somebody has mistaken me for someone or they've like they're remembering something that I know absolutely could not have happened in any way, mm. I'll just go along with it. <laughs> Even though I know it's not true. <laughs> Rather than say to this person, I'm sorry, you are wrong. Like it's not not even me being mean or like yeah, whatever. Like yeah, I yeah. just it's demonstrably I wasn't in that country in that year or whatever. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, uh, there's just me going, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then no, that's right. just what happened now. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, history. And I also think that with the way that I write, yeah. that I write, my, the writing I like is, uh, facts be damned. Like mm. everything in my stand-up show is like, so you did this brilliant show, Electric Dreams. Yep. Uh, uh, and it's, it is about you wanting to be a musician when you're like growing up and mm. like, you know, you're going back and re- you're revisiting songs and lyrics from a diary. Yep. There's a part of me that just as a technician mm. wants to go, okay, like how much of this is original lyrics? How much have you both? Because again, no judgments. Like yeah. I don't think it's a fucking documentary. You're writing a show, right? Yeah, like, yeah. But there's another part of me that just doesn't want to know. Yeah, Because yeah. the story, the way you tell that story, yeah. it feels absolutely true to me, even if mm. some of the facts have been changed to obscure or whatever. Like what? If, sure. And again, I'm not even talking about your show particularly when I say this. I'm talking about- In general. In general. Yeah. Like, everything in my show is true. Mm. And like most of it isn't exactly true at all because- Of course. Like, you know- But so, that's, that's the art of being a stand-up, I think, is that yeah. you- take the real world and you spin it into a story in in a way that other people can get on board with and relate to. You streamline things, you shift some things around. I mean, I certainly did. I shifted a few key moments around so that they just fit a narrative a bit better. Because you're telling a story yeah. that may, like reveals a greater truth. Yeah, right? and people can mm. project themselves onto that story. And, and what I would like to say is journalism isn't as fond of that approach. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 100%. <laughs> exactly right. In fact, they it's uh, you can go to jail for it. <laughs> in the old days, at least. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure these days. Yeah, that's probably not jail, anymore, but... but they you get in trouble. But yeah, I... So tell me about your journalism you know, period then. Well, oh, okay. So look, I was a really hyperactive kid, um, and this is probably, I reckon this is true all the way through to now as an adult and even in my teenage years and stuff where I just, there was a lot of different things I wanted to do and I didn't quite know how to do them well, but I would attempt them all, you know? And so I wrote for the first time when I was, my parents' friend ran a street press and they thought it would be cute to have a child who was eight years old do reviews of theatre shows. Okay. So I would go with my parents for free to the theatre in Newcastle, and then afterwards me and my mum would sit down and we'd write a review together of that show. And they'd, they, and they'd kidify it. My mum would help out a little bit and make it like, 
deliberately cute that a kid was reviewing a theatre show. And so I got published in the street press when I was eight or something as like a critic (laughs) (laughs) of of shows. And so I guess I had it instilled in my head from that age, you're good at this, Uh even though it was largely probably my mum doing it and there was a novelty factor of the fact that I was a kid. And so all through primary school, I was always trying to write short stories. I could barely concentrate on my schoolwork at all. I was very imaginative. I was always trying to think of stories or fucking poems or songs or anything like that. And uh, and then all, I just always assumed I was going to grow up to be a writer, whether that meant writing music or writing movies or writing, you know, eventually it became stand-up. But, but did you really think that you were going to write? Like, I mean, I, like, so, mm. like, I mean, I've recently seen the show about your musical career, but sure. that doesn't seem so foreign. Like, you know, like, like you said, one of the central tenets of that show is the fact that Silverchair yeah. had been a bunch of like teenage boys who yeah, suddenly yeah. become this world famous band. So definitely if you can see it, you can be it. Absolutely. But, like when you then say, oh, I was going to write movies, I was going to uh-huh. do these things. Like where did that ambition come from or the thought that you could do that? That's very curious. I have no idea. I was obsessed with movies as a kid. I used to watch films and then I'd go into my room and draw fictional posters for versions of those movies that I was also in. (laughs) So it would be like Home Alone, but also Cameron's in it (laughs) with Kevin McAllister and me and Kevin McAllister are teaming up to stop the baddies. And so I, I guess so it was literally just... the one premise of the movie that the kid is alone. <laughs> yeah, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> home, not quite alone. Yeah, home with a buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was just coming from being a little bit hyperactive and yeah. a bit imaginative. So I just and figured out. I figured you could do it. So in the show that you saw, I've I've I still have these books. I have a big stack of notebooks that I kept from age 12 to 17 that are largely filled with song lyrics and um, things like that. But there's way more than that in there. There's also, like, I start writing a play at some point. So for 10 pages, there's just a play and then that just peters off into nothing. And then there's a premise for a science fiction movie that peters off into nothing. And then there's, you know, maybe a couple of joke ideas as drawings. There's all sorts of stuff in these books. I clearly was just trying to be creative but yeah. could never commit to anything. You but know? that's okay. Like, mm. I mean, it feels, I mean, in retrospect, what a, like, almost something you would encourage, which is this idea of, because I, I often think this with stand-up, that's the prism, you know, through which I see most of these things. But mm. I think it has a broader context in relation to this conversation, which mm. is the best thing you could do in your first year or two of stand-up is try everything. Mm. Be a mime one week. Yep. Like, you know, juggle, do voices, like do act Mm. outs, like do a completely improvised set, all within the context of this is fine. Yeah. This is just do this tonight. Doesn't mean that next week, (laughs) like you might just be ruling it out. Yep. You know, but we don't allow ourselves that true freedom to experiment or Mm. to be creative. And in a way, that's kind of feels like what you were doing. You're like, I want to be creative. Which of these yeah, what am I, which forms is my thing? of creativity yeah. is the one that I can best, you know, funnel my creativity into? Very true. I was, I was like that all the way through, even up until recently, probably. Probably in the last five years, I was still experimenting with different types of things. I mean, I remember you saw me at a show <clears throat> maybe three or four years ago, 
at the old Giant Dwarf Theatre and I got up and I just did a straight-up comedy song, like yeah. a Flight of the Concord-style comedy song yeah. with jokes in it. And, and I remember I got off stage and you went, I didn't know you did comedy songs. And I was like, maybe I do. I don't know. I'm sort of, I'm just trying it, <laughs> yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out I, that wasn't really my thing, but I wanted to give it a crack, even kind of recently. You know? Yeah, and but even the fact that then this other show you write becomes about mm. a comedy take on these, like, what were meant to be serious songs you wrote when you were young. Totally. And so it feels like you're, you're, you're finding out what's there. And it is mm. a bigger part of who you are. Like you do seem like, and so I guess this was the question we started mm. with when we said comedian, what does that mean? Yeah. Like yep. what does it mean now? Like, because you started listing the things that you have to do. I mean, mm. you and Alexi have been making these like uh, documentaries that have been, well, how do you describe them? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't, I never know, but investigative comedy yeah. seems right. Yeah. yeah. So you're doing that. Mm. Like you said, you're writing. Mm. You've got like stand up, but you're doing musical comedy as well as like stand up. You're podcasting with different people. Like it does feel like yeah. there is a lot of things going on. Yeah. How is that because you want to be doing that many things? Is it because sometimes saying you're good at saying yes to a new thing without realizing that you need to? clear off something else as well. Like I'm sure that's is, all part is of It's part of this industry, particularly this new industry. Mm. I was talking to someone the other day about podcasts and I said, the funny thing about, you know, because Charlie and I, you know, like mm. we weren't there from the absolute start, but, mm. you know, it certainly, we were there. Pretty close. We were there from the days when it, it was enough to, like the, it was enough to have a podcast. Yeah, You didn't yeah. have to have a reason to have a podcast. Yeah, Just the yeah. fact that you had a podcast was enough. And we went through that period where you would suddenly see people stop doing things. Yep. Because the first time ever the appeal of this thing had been, you know, no one can tell you to stop. Mm. And then suddenly you realize that was also a blessing and a curse, which yep. was that no one can tell you to stop. Like there isn't yes. someone, sometimes it's good if someone comes in There's and no ta end date. taps you on the shoulder and says, this is done now. Like we, you should finish oh, it dude. up. This is my fantasy. Um, I, I believe there should be some kind of tribunal in comedy where every year or two you have to go in front of the panel of like the heads of comedy and show all the things that you're doing and they can just look at it and go, all right, you can stop doing that. You don't need to do that anymore. Focus on this. Put your energies more into storytelling uh, in your stand-up. I can see that you've got an aptitude for that. Um, maybe drop the <laughs> podcast. It's not really growing in numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we needed a consultant to come yeah. in and just look at your overall. I would love that. Like a comedy Marie Kondo. <laughs> yes. It just comes in and goes, like, yes. is, is this still bringing you joy? Yes. Then why are you still doing this thing? Well, I'm, but to answer your question, I think part of doing a lot of things nowadays is by necessity and also by the fact that you want to try and find an audience no matter where they are, you know, like, because ultimately we're trying to find an audience that will then come and see our shows and support us and be, come along on the journey with us, you know, and you don't know where they're going to be. Maybe they're through a podcast audience. Maybe they're an Instagram thing. Maybe that, maybe they see you in a sketch and then they become a fan that way. But my ultimate goal, especially the older I get, I'm 35 now, and I feel like I'm at a point where I want to just strip away bit by bit almost 
everything until there's only three things left that I'm doing. And I want stand-up to be one of them. And I don't know what the others are. But I just know that for me, stand-up is the, is the main thing. And hopefully there's maybe one or two other ancillary things either side of that that are helpful and that are all part of me being a stand-up. But I want to cut stuff out. I, I just want to do less and just streamline, really. Yeah, that's the thing, streamline. Mm. Mm. not Because it does, it feels very – and look, I have some insight into it in my world, but, like, not in the same way. You know, mm. this wasn't what – the career path looked like for me when I was coming up and coming mm. through, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have to have like all these things going on. Yeah. And the fact that every day there seems to be a new thing. Mm, I know. You well, know, I can't so do it's it. like, I'm not on TikTok. I can't do it. No. Anything. And I feel like even being on TikTok, if you got on now, like it's, you, too, late. it's too, way too late. Like, <laughs> and sad. So <laughs> real sad. Some guy in his thirties getting on now <laughs> trying yeah. to do dances. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here now, guys. Let's. I I, I join everything a bit too yeah. late as well. That is one of my problems. Oh, mate! By the time I get somewhere, the whole <laughs> thing's fucked. Like <laughs> that's a bad sign if I've rocked up. Like if I've heard about it and finally got my ass yeah. in here. Yeah, I always think like you don't want to be the last person uh. to be doing the trend, and you're the reason that the trend becomes uncool. All of a sudden, people look over and go. Oh, he's wearing a fedora. Oh, fuck. Okay. Fedoras are Gotta out. Gotta throw my okay. hats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> uh, well, I ask people on this podcast if they have a life philosophy of any mm. kind, Cameron. And mm. so do you have one? Uh, and if so, what does it apply to? Yeah. So obviously it changes a lot mm. uh, through life. And I've probably gone through a lot of different phases of different philosophies. I grew up incredibly religious, very Catholic. I don't think I've even told anyone. I can't remember if I've told you this. I certainly have maybe only told Alexi and a couple of other people, but so Catholic that we have a cardinal in our family. Mm. There's only a handful of Australian cardinals, Pell being one of them. He's quite famous Mm. for doing some bad stuff. Allegedly. Allegedly. I don't know. Sure. Is he dead now? Can you defame a dead man? I don't think you can, no. That is actually true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but again, I know as much about religion as I know about the law. So, (laughs) Uh, Well, my my great uncle is a a man who's also passed away called, uh, his name is Cardinal Cassidy, and he's from Newcastle and then became a priest and then became, eventually became a cardinal, lived in the Vatican Mm -hmm. and was a diplomat for the Vatican. And so my family are incredibly Catholic and they would... Almost everyone in my family has met a pope at some point. <laughs> I haven't. I never got to meet a pope. What a... That's a brag, isn't it? It's <laughs> a weird... <laughs> like, there's just so much about that. It's like, firstly, even just the sentence, everyone in my family has met a pope at some stage. <laughs> like, not like implying that, like... Not the same Pope, not at the same different occasion. Popes, yeah. Yeah, different Popes on different occasions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But my family has met him. And i got to be honest with you, I'm the only one who hasn't. I'm furious about it. Yeah. <laughs> and are you the only one who's fallen from the past? No, no, no. I think in, in recent years, especially since the Royal Commission stuff, most of my family have drifted away from Catholicism. Um, and, you know, I think but the, the tenets of the beliefs are still there. Um you so know. I, I like to ask this of Catholics because obviously Charlie, who I do my other podcast, Tofop with, he uh, he's a uh, 
well, he was raised Catholic, you mm. know, a family of 47 and, um, you know, like the whole, the whole deal. Yeah, yeah. And he says the one thing that still is with him is the guilt. Like, yeah, he, he just does, has definitely. this inherent mm. Catholic guilt that he cannot shake regardless of what, you know, his life beliefs are now. Is that yeah. something that you also have? Absolutely. I talk about it with um, Anne Edmonds quite a bit. Mm-hmm. She's Catholic and Geraldine Hickey too. We often talk about it's it's a guilt, but it's deeper than guilt. It's an assumption that something is going to go wrong at all times, mm-hmm. especially it's pride before the fall, essentially. So if something goes good, the second it goes good, I immediately think, well, there's a bad thing coming very soon. I mean, that probably is true. I know. <laughs> it so far has been proven to be yeah. true. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I grew up that way. And then I, when I was a teenager, when I was getting into music and starting to play in bands, it's very uncool to be a Christian rock band. Mm-hmm. So I started to, you know, question it. And then I, uh, I guess I eventually, slowly over a number of years, lost my faith. Now I probably wouldn't even say I'm an atheist. I would say I'm agnostic because I just don't know. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I like hearing what other people believe. And I like sometimes for a brief period of time, believing what other people believe. And I think maybe this is something that is important to me, which is, is curiosity, like being curious is maybe a life philosophy that I will land on. I think you have to be curious about the world, curious about the people in the world, I like listening to them and hearing what the way that they pass through life and maybe I take some lessons from it or maybe I go, oh, I'm going to do the opposite of them. Or, but either way, it's listening and curiosity. I think that's that's gotten me, you know, anything that I've gotten, really. I got a little distracted and stopped concentrating on what you were saying, <laughs> but, like, it seemed interesting. Um, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you absolutely can't. <laughs> um, no, I I agree. So, like, one of the things that is most interesting about that to me is mm. that I think that I absolutely relate to this idea of, in fact, a lot of the time that's what this show is about. Mm. Like, mm. I don't have any firmly, I, I know what I think, mm. but I know what I'm basing that on, which is fuck all. Yeah, like yeah. exactly. Inher- like an inherent belief that scientists who I trust know what they're, talking about, but, you know, like also in the whole, man, it's a huge universe and Mm. like, I don't know, this is all pretty like bananas for something to just randomly happen as well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So whatever someone's explanation of that is and whatever, you know, is the thing that infuses their life with meaning through that, Mm. like is fascinating to me and is intoxicating to me. Do you ever... Because this is the, uh, I mean, not necessarily the difference. I'm asking Mm. for what you think. But Mm. for me, the thing that I find incredibly curious, I was talking to um, mutual acquaintance Ben Lee about this very thing, which Mm. was, because, you know, Ben's a joiner. Yeah. Like Ben, he's like, you know, somebody (laughs) tell you some new theory about what the world is. And he's like, where do I sign up? What am I selling? And not only that, yeah, I'm on the the bandwagon and I'll write the theme song. That's right. Like (laughs) he's always been that person. Like he really does look for these communities and these connections yeah, and these, yeah. you know, and he's the first to admit that that is like, you know, he's a, he's joined a few cults in his time. Yeah. 
Whereas I like hearing about it all. Like I, I like hearing the spiel. Me too. Like I wouldn't mind going in for an IQ test at the Scientology place because I want to. Yeah. I want to see what the pitch is. I'd like to be but, accepted into every group. Yeah. And then not be at the front, but just be sort of near the back, kind of listening and also whispering to other people, being like, "Do you buy all this shit? <laughs> <laughs> is this? Do you think this is real?" Yeah, I never. I'm not a joiner. I've never mm. signed up to anything. But because you've got this Catholic background, mm. do you find yourself when somebody else does have a compelling theory or emotion about mm. what they believe, do you f- find yourself being susceptible to believing that a little bit? Or is it now just that idea of, oh, well, these are all theories and it's nice to hear your theory? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two, there's just two halves of me. There's the romantic and the cynic, I guess. And the romantic will believe almost anything that feels spiritual. Even if someone's telling me a ghost story, if they've got an experience with a ghost. Now, I don't believe in ghosts. I know that. But if I'm sitting across from someone and they tell me in all sincerity, I was in a room and I felt a spirit, in the moment, I believe that, and or at least I believe okay. them. Yeah, uh, that's interesting to me. So, like, you don't believe in ghosts, but I, I do need to ask this one, of course. Um, hmm. Are you afraid of no ghosts? <laughs> because that's... <laughs> Sorry. Well, look, I know who I'd call uh, okay. if there was if a there ghost. If there was a ghost, yeah, who would yeah. you call? Who are you going to call? But no, um, here's what I would... So, I don't believe in ghosts either. Hmm. It's interesting to me because... When somebody sincerely tells me a story of like, you know, something that they've had where mm. they say they've had an encounter, mm. I, yeah, I want to believe them. I don't want to diminish what it is that, that's always a tricky area because you're like, I respect that and I respect that you've had th- that experience. Mm. But also there's a part of my brain that's like, yeah, but ghosts aren't real. So totally. you didn't. Like, yeah. <laughs> and absolutely. I never would be hopefully the person who would say that to the person. But <laughs> there is a part of my brain that just cannot get swept up in. No. Dude, I remember my wife a few mm. years ago told me in all sincerity a story about how she was doing a seance with her friend when they were teenagers, yeah. her friend Sophie. And they felt something changed in the room and then a glass that was on the table fell over and shattered. And she was telling me this and she was saying, in all sense, we, we got in touch with something from the other side. And, and she was saying, and that's why I'm open to believing in all this stuff. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. But in my head, I was like, I'm married to a fucking liar (laughs) (laughs) and a lunatic. What the fuck is she talking about? There's no way that happened. She's exaggerated it. It was a glint of light, something, I don't know, she bumped the table. But, but then, it, so if you, then you, so there's the religious stories about the world or the mm. otherworldly stories about the world, the explanations about the world. But then mm. if you do any reading around like maths and physics and, you know, quantum physics and all these sort of things, you know, the theories about how time operates and, mm. you know, like how we're experiencing time versus how time might actually be and, you know, all those sort of things is, I mean, it might as well be magic and ghosts and witchcraft yeah. as well. Like, because all that theoretical science seems as far-fetched as somebody seeing a ghost, right? Yeah, true. I mean, all of that stuff. And and also, I will say, as much as I'm willing to go along with anyone's spiritual uh, experience and I kind of want to believe in it, at the same time, I want to believe every bit of pseudoscience about that oh, shit as well. So if someone goes, someone will say, I had a near-death experience, you know, I nearly died and I saw the light and I felt warmth and I felt mm. blah, blah, blah. And then another guy will go, 
You know, in the last uh, seven minutes of your life, every neuron in your brain fires and it feels like ecstasy. That's what heaven is. Mm. I want to believe both, or at least I want to hear both. Mm. And I don't ever know where I land on these things, but I like knowing that (laughs) there's many different possibilities. Yeah, because like... I, I, I particularly find that by the time I find out one way or the other, mm. and like if, if, if what I'm betting on is true, which is that we're just a random accident in the corner sure. of the universe and mm. when I die, I'll be dead, then I probably don't find out. Yeah, right? exactly. Which is comforting just, too. Yeah. Like one day I'm just like alive and yeah. then the next day I don't exist and anymore. And like, I guess someone was right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I'll never know. <laughs> I don't know. And I think like it's this... Yeah, because, again, like, you know, I say grow up Catholic and then went through a very heavy atheist phase okay. in my teen. Late so teens. the reactionary to... Of course. Yes. Big reaction. Everyone in my family is still Catholic. Mm. The cardinal is in my yeah. family. And I think I'm 17 mm. and I show up at my nan's house with, like, Richard Dawkins' God, God Delusion, Delusion under my arm. Say, that yeah. was... <laughs> And I'm quoting the movie Fight Club and being like, yeah, it's all fucking nothing anyway, man. It's all bullshit. (laughs) Who cares? It's just fucking fake. These stories have been around forever and they just change the name to whatever deity it needs to be. (laughs) Saying this to my grandmother and grandfather, you know. (laughs) We'll we'll tell the Pope when we're ready to him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll let him know. Maybe that's why I never got invited. But um. And then, uh, so I don't know, I guess there's, there's those two halves of me at all times. And now I don't know where I land on any of it, but I do. How, how long did it take to move through the, because like, I mean, I mm. think I wasn't even raised heavily religious, just like Church of England, you know, and mm. so, but you know, like there was church on Sundays and Sunday school and stuff like that. Mm. And I, you know, in my mid twenties, God delusion, you know, like time of course, was like, you know, yeah, this makes sense. None of it is real. And <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like, But I got bored of that very quickly because the truth of it is that I never was that indoctr- indoctrinated into the original thing. Yeah, yeah. For the response to be, like, I remember I started to get, like, a lot of requests to, you know, play atheist gigs and stuff because mm. it had been a routine of mine. Yeah, I remember this. And it, whatever it was, it was, like, in the days before things even went viral, it yeah. had kind of gone underground viral. Mm. In like, And I can't even remember what it was, but it was, like, something that atheists had particularly responded to. And yeah. just for a period of time, I was getting, like, a lot of come and play our you know, pagan God, uh, like no church festival and <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah. I was like, oh, that doesn't feel like. Well, yeah, you don't want to be I don't feel like my opinion group. is that strident. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to belong to either extreme, really. No. I'd say it took me a long time to move through it. Probably into my 30s was when I started settling back into an idea of atheism and maybe even just I, uh, like I, I love and respect the idea of spirituality again and I'd be open to falling back into that path at some point in future. I'm just not there yet. But also another thing is, and you kind of brought this up too, um, the idea that it is all random, right, which is which is comforting too, the idea that there is no meaning and there is no purpose and we're not on a path, right? I like that. I like the idea that maybe it, it all means nothing and we're just, you know, the masters of our own fate. But... As you know, when I was 17 and uh, I I did nearly die because I was stabbed at school and I survived that and I came out the other side of it 
with this, I don't even know if it was a belief, but some thought that I had to have been alive for a reason. And um, now I don't think so. <laughs> but for an, about 10 years, I was like, I guess I survived so that I could provide the world with something. And I spent about 10 years being convinced, I've, I guess I've got to find the thing that I'm providing the world with. Now I'm 35. I'm like, no, nah, I just think they, the guy didn't stab me deep enough. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I had a DMT trip once that... I really felt like I was seeing things that were going to happen in the near future. But as the near future has gone and passed, <laughs> yes. COVID didn't even get a mention in this <laughs> vision I was having. So I don't reckon it checked out in retrospect. No, <laughs> no. I believed it at the time, though. Of felt course. like a thing. No, so they, but on a more serious note, like how near to death were you? Like, you know, for people who don't know mm. this story. Yeah, so the the a short version of the story is I was mucking around with some kids at school Um and one of them had a scalpel that he'd stolen from the science labs. And we were kind of wrestling and, you know, just being boys and mucking around. And he accidentally, I believe, ended up stabbing me in the hand with this scalpel and it cut the arteries and, um, I mean, it cut it, it sliced my hand open. Mm. My fingers were dangling off, but the artery is the main thing. So I lost a lot of blood and I got rushed to one hospital. They couldn't get me in. They'd take me to another hospital. Um, surgery, it's all fine. Everything is fine. But, you know, if I, the amount of blood that you lose from an artery cut is crazy. You know, it shot two meters up into the air. Mm. Like it was, it comes out with such force and such speed that I think if there was another half hour or so, I probably would have been gone. And uh, and everyone rubbed that into me too. Like doctors would say, you're so lucky to be alive and my parents as well. So, you know, when you've got adults telling you you're lucky to be alive, you do, that does sink in when you're 17 or however old I was. Yeah, right. And so mm. when, it, when it is that close, like, you know, mm. and people are sending you that message, you know, mm. like... Is there, like, what are you getting from that? Like, are you getting from them that you need to, like, is this where that thought that you hear for a reason comes from? Because you're like, well, I now need to justify the fact that I am lucky to be here. Like, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think, it, I think that informs a lot of it, that you put all this pressure on yourself then to go, well, I have to be great at something because mm. I've like, I caused a lot of stress and trauma to a lot of people and myself. And also, it was my mum's 40th birthday on the day oh. I got stabbed. I ruined her fucking birthday. So I got all that <laughs> hanging over me. That, and my mum brought that up a lot too. She? She's like, you know, it was my 40th that day. Oh, my <laughs> God. Mum. Come on. Had a party planned for that night. Oh, <laughs> mum. Although I will say that my 40th was my favourite party I've ever had. So you oh, might really? be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. So I, I think, uh, yeah, there is a bit of pressure that you apply to yourself and maybe I can see looking back on my early 20s especially that I was so serious about all my endeavours, mm. like whether it was comedy or writing, whatever, to the because I wanted to succeed so badly, I guess because I wanted to prove that I, you know, had survived for a reason. But I think to the point where I was like bad at stuff. Cause what I was does just, that mean? I like, was, explain that more. Well, I think I was so serious and focused on 
wanting to succeed, that I just wasn't having fun and being joyful and um, being fucking curious to the world or like even just having a good time. I wasn't really making buddies early on in comedy either. I was sort of like a bit of a loner for a little while there. Oh, yeah, I can. So, look, I, I do think that sometimes as comedians, we forget that the job is to be comedic. Yeah. You yeah. Know, like that it is a fun job. Totally. You, yeah. You have to take it seriously, but like it is a fun job. And mm. when you are forgetting that it's fun. And if you're not making friends, as you know, is mm. like your friends aren't just friends you make. Like, I mean, I've got lifelong comedy friends, but so there is that joy of being able to go, I've known this person for you know, 28, 29 years mm. now. They're like, And they're really only my comedy friend. You know, they're someone I've known through comedy, but I consider to be like yeah. a, a friend for that period of time. But they also become your collaborators, the people yeah. you work with. Like this is the thing that no one tells you at the time is, it's not just like how you're doing. It's like, who are your friends with? And are they going to, like, is there going to be a role for you in the thing that they make? Like it might yeah. not, it, it's not necessarily always going to be, that you are going to be the person who unlocks that door for you. It might be the person next, standing next to you is like, hey, yep. someone's just opened a door for me and they and I need... Yeah, you know, come in with me. Come yeah. in with me. Like, yeah. So yeah. the idea of cutting yourself off from other people, <laughs> it's like, it's really <laughs> dumb. It's so dumb. <laughs> it took me a little while to kind yeah. of chill and kind of like start being like less competitive and being a friend and being open to collaboration and all that stuff. I've heard you talk about this on the podcast and off the podcast. It's like uh, when you're doing comedy, it's really just like a pursuit of like stripping away all the little, um, all the like armor that you've built up around yourself for a long time and trying to get, I don't know how you phrase it, but like closer to, I guess, some kind of authenticity or whatever. And that, I've been I've now been doing comedy for thirteen years, and I reckon I've only started coming close to that in the last three. Mm. I reckon, probably since COVID. I mean, that's. I mean, I think that though. Mm. You know, I think what I've done post COVID feels like a different evolution in who I am as a comedian. Mm. Like, and that then I you just feel dumb about everything else you did so beforehand. I'm, anyone who's seen me <laughs> before three years ago, I feel so sorry for. That's, I, I think that. <laughs> and I've foisted a quarter of a century of stuff on people. Like, <laughs> that's one of the weirdest things about it is this idea that you never, like, I mean, you know, it, it's it, it's tough to master comedy. Like mm. it is, it's not something that is easily mastered. And even if you can master it for a minute, yeah. Like sometimes times just change and something yes, that was so like, true. you know, the, a perfect episode of Faulty Towers at the time mm. might not be a perfect episode of television through the eyes of viewers like 40, 50 years later, right? That's so, a certainty that that will happen. Like we, we will all date. So, uh, so talk to me about that then. Do, is that something that you think about at all when you're putting together what it is that you do, like th- th- mm. th- that it has some sort of time frame on it, like, or that how will this be viewed through the eyes of people, you know, two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? I don't, uh, actually don't think so. I think, um, and I'd, I would, I wouldn't think you do either. I imagine you're just like living in the moment and making whatever feels right for the moment. Um, but I definitely look yeah, back. Yeah, because the big thing for me is that you can't guess. Yeah, you can't. It would be crazy to try and predict. Because it'll be something be the... that you don't. Yeah. That you're not expecting. Oh, I'm a friend of mine. <laughs> he's not really a friend, but he's a friend of a friend. Yeah. He um, is a novelist, or he tries to be a novelist. Mm. And around the time that 
the Twilight books were really popular, he started trying to predict what the next young adult, like, big trend would be. And so he wrote, like, three books in different genres. None of them ended up being the big trend. But I reckon that's – you can't do it. You're just, just like, writing for nobody at that point. You're writing for a fictional audience that don't exist or you're trying to write for what you think the algorithm's going to want. But, of course, it's for no one and it's not even coming from you. It's coming from this, like, place of, I don't know, trying to make money or some shit. It is interesting, though, because, like, comedy is one of those things, and I'd be guilty of this. I think most people are at some stage, which is, you know, we're told that you can hack every other aspect of our lives. Mm. You know, here's mm. an easy hack to cook yeah. your eggs quicker. Todd Samson, here's a body hack. hack. To, right? Mm. Whereas comedy hack rarely works. <laughs> I mean, both mm. comedy hack and also comedy yeah. hack, which is... And I've tried both. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so... But that I sometimes you see someone come through and they've studied comedy. Oh yeah, like you know, so really hard, mm. and they've gone. It's okay. I don't need to go through these things because I've heard, you know, yeah. these comedians talk about this thing, or I know this, like you know, whatever. And I've just kind of, and I can artificially accelerate myself through the process by like trying to hack it. Yep. And it just so rarely works because it's not about knowing the, the, the experience is coming. Mm. It's about having the experience. Yeah, yeah. And I think audiences are also so smart in a way that we probably don't even acknowledge that much because, I mean, I've been in a lot of audiences and you just instinctively know as a collective when something's fake Uh or when it's wrong or when it's just off. You feel it. Every audience sits there and goes, okay, they're they're trying to be something they're not here and um, and it makes us tense. And then that's why they close up. I actually, on that, I have a question for you Yes. because I've known you uh, personally for a little while, but as Will Anderson, the comedian, I've known you forever, grew up listening to you on the radio and stuff. And you were, you were like the cool comic at the time. So I have a question for you mm. as a younger comic breaking through on triple J, were you aware or conscious of being cool? And were you trying to be cool? Or was it something? Were you? Were you? Do you ever look back on those times and go, "Oh, I can see that I was like trying to be." Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a good question. Like, I, that's a, honestly a very good question, <clears throat> and I'll try to be honest in answering it. Yeah, please do. You know, I grew up in a, like a, a dairy farm, like mm. so. I wasn't con- like, and particularly for what was cool in the, even the area I went to, Sale, where I went to school, mm. like the things that I am into weren't considered to be cool. Like, you know, like, I mean, I, I was a good sports person. Sport mm. was cool. Mm. But then when it came to music and those sort of things, it was very much like you, you're more cold chisel, Jimmy sure. Barnes, like when you're into hip-hop rock and, and roll. And yeah, the mm. stuff. And I'm into like the cure, alt music and mm. hip-hop, like mm. American hip-hop mostly. And just that that wasn't considered to be cool. It was considered to be weird. Right? Sure, yep. I... Yep. Absolutely don't think that I was cool at university. Like, it doesn't feel like my university – like, people liked me. Like, I, get, mm. I think I get along well with people. But, yeah. like, I was studying a lot and I'm working in the press gallery and whatever. So I was only, like, really when I, like, started doing comedy mm. that – and I, you know, it was mostly – here's why people normally think you're cool when you're, like, y- y- I had long hair. You know, that's <laughs> it. That's all it really was, right? <laughs> 
Oh, that's such that's a good pretty, point. Pretty much it, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I just had long hair. Everyone's and I like, had, oh, there's a bad boy in town. And I had earrings. That's what it was. Yeah, I, had, yeah. I had earrings and yeah. I had long hair. Oh, no, painted my nails. Yeah, so yeah, suddenly yeah. you're like, cool, right? In comparison, too, to like yeah. a lot of other well, that was comics the, at the time. That's the other thing, right? Yeah. Not... Not cool for a normal person in society, cool. <laughs> yeah. Cool for a comedian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I guess that, I mean, Triple J, particularly it's sort of in that era, but I think throughout the history of Triple J, mm. um, you know, you, like you get some cool by association. You know, obviously mm. it, that was the sort of music I liked as well. So, like, you know, I ended up being f- friends with, you know, people who are in the bands or yeah. whatever, and then that you get that you're, you're suddenly the – the rock and roll comedian. Totally, yeah. You know, when Powderfinger did their last, you know, live at the wireless gig before they, like, retired, they, they were like, can you come and host? You know, that, that yeah, was yeah. kind of, yeah. So there was definitely some element of that. Mm. And you can't, like, you can't help n- noticing, right? Mm. Because it comes in two ways, really, which is that you get a lot of attention from girls, like, mm. that you weren't getting before. And... um nightclubs like you to be there. Yeah, like right. We would, you know, me and my mates, because, like, all my mates are other just my other mates who are the same age as me. Mm. And, you know, the idea that, like, we would be in King's Cross or whatever on the weekend and not have to stand in line was, mm. like, it was amazing. So could you just, like, you'd pretty much skip the line? I would never do it because that's not my personality. Yeah. But I had a friend <laughs> who would absolutely do it on my behalf. Oh, she was the one you. who would march <laughs> up and go, you know who's here, like, so that everyone could get in. And, that's like, so cool. Oh, man. And so, yeah, and then, like, came drugs and, mm. you know, big days out and, you know, partying with, like, rock stars and, like, all that yeah. level of it. And so I guess, like, insofar as you think that that is cool, you start to buy into sure. that for sure. Like, okay. Yeah, there's a period of time there where you're like, yeah, would have been cooler if you, like, had acted a bit cooler. But how, how old are you at this, at, at this time? I'm going to say, like, this is mostly all Triple J era yeah. stuff. So, like, up to when I'm about 30. Like, okay. I mean, yeah. that's, I think that's totally normal Yeah. to be, to buy into the hype you know, if you have it at that age. I think if you were in your 40s and you were doing that, everyone would be like, okay. But someone well, in their then 20s I, can do that. Like, and as kind of people may have observed, then I've gone the absolute direct, opposite direction, which mm. is like I've literally gone, yeah, that was fun, but, yeah. like, I don't go to openings of things, I don't go to logies, I don't go to whatever. Like, yeah. that's now not part of – I just love doing this. Yeah, Like, I love true. doing my job. Yeah. And – I would like to think, Cameron, that makes me the coolest <laughs> I think person so. ever. I think, I think there's nothing cooler than nothing caring cooler about than your job. <laughs> but I guess my, my question then off that is um, when you look back at that time in your life, do you think that this perhaps awareness or buying into the hype of cool affected your Art yeah, or your absolutely. comedy in yeah, a negative yeah. way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. But because also you had that thing of, like, I don't have, like, I'm so much better at what I do now than I was, you know, 20 years ago. But, like, 
there was a period of time 20 years ago where, like, the crowds are double what, you know, like, mm. you know, I'd sell five N-Mores in a row, you know what I mean? Like, that was mm. the world that I lived in for a while, and none of those shows were anywhere near as good as the shows I do now. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I wish that when I had access to that huge size of audience that, mm. like, I'd been able to deliver, like, the sort of work that... Because, like, there's something really great about, like, me, me feeling like I'm in my late 40s, mm. like, you know, nearly 50, and feeling like I'm doing my best work is yeah. great. It's awesome. But there's another part of me that's like, <laughs> <laughs> would have been handy if I was this good, like, 20 years ago. How you many know? people get that, though? Like, not not many, I'm sure. You know, there's in the world, there's probably only, like, two comedians ever that have been at the peak of their audience size and maybe the peak of their artistic powers yeah, at the same true. time. They really yeah, yeah. absolutely coincide with each other. And I think the th- good thing about comedy is maybe the older you get, off, I think the better you get. I, I feel it. I, I guess the reason I brought this up is because when I look back at anything, not that I have any a lot of stuff filmed from, you know, the last 13 years, but if I look back at a clip, if I did ABC Up Late six or seven years ago, mm. I, I just go, oh, that dude thinks he's cool as shit and yeah. it's embarrassing to watch. There's a clip of me on Raw Comedy in 2012, which I came second in, um, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> to, to who? <laughs> to Lessons with Lewis, a sketch oh, group. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, all right. Okay. Um, I love Lessons with Lewis, yeah. so that's a good... Yeah, that was happy yeah. to lose to them. Um, me and Amos Gill both came second. We were mm. um, run, co-runners up. Is that right? And... Actually, I, th- I would say this is true of both me and Amos, but I'm only going to talk about me. Mm. I look back we at both that clip. Have very white teeth. <laughs> no, <laughs> I we're both wearing leather jackets. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, I look back at that right. clip and I'm like, okay, there's a dude in a leather jacket. My hair's huge, and I'm wearing like a paisley shirt underneath the leather jacket that's unbuttoned, maybe a few too many buttons unbuttoned, really tight jeans. And I'm maybe 25 or something, and I'm like, oh, okay, I can't even look at this dude. This guy thinks he's awesome, and he's not. Like, the talent doesn't match the armor, you know? But I do think that sometimes, like, one's compensating for the other, right? Mm. Like, you're aspiring to be that person, Mm. so you're dressing for the job that you want, Mm. right? Mm. Whereas then when you feel like I'm confident enough that I don't need to... Like, I find this with... Uh, like reviews outside um, feedback. Mm. Like I'm, you know, like I said, like I'm late in my life, you know, to be having this, like to get to this point. But I've now got to the point where I just make things, you know, vac- I don't mean I don't want any feedback, but I want feedback from the people who are working on the thing with me or they're, mm. you know, like, but external feedback, external noise just goes away because you get to the point where you're like, I'm confident that I know what I'm trying to do. I'm not saying that I will actually be able to do it, Mm. but I'm confident that I know what I'm trying to do. Whereas back then, like, I wish I could go back and tell the me who started out, just you don't have to try so hard. Like, you know, that's the thing that I would say. Mm. Because I tried hard, you know, Mm. I was like, oh, well, this is the thing I'm going to bring to the table. I'm going to try really, really hard constantly to, you know, I'm going to, like make, yeah, I'm going to come in and this is going to happen, right? Like mm-hmm. that was really my approach to it. Mm, me too. I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah. And I wish that I could have said to that person, chill a little bit more. Me too. Like, you know. I had people tell me to chill at the yeah. time and I just was like, they don't know what they're fucking yeah. talking about. <laughs> <laughs> 
I remember, I think Matt O'Kine or someone, yeah. when I was like maybe two years in, was like, yeah. I think you can relax a little bit, man. You're fine. And I yeah. was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, getting older is better for you as like a, a person and as a creative person because you're, you know, you're not cool anymore. Like mm. you can be cool in a different way yeah. in your 30s and 40s. But and you're stuff, not but trying to be. You're not trying to be a 23-year-old cool person. It'd be anymore. sad if you were. It would be horrifying if I was. Yeah. And I think that's a nice thing to get away from is to have the distance from that time in your life and you can be a bit more honest. You can be a bit more open about your embarrassing flaws and people respond to that. They like that. They like seeing you, you know, share yourself in that way. What's something that you would share now that you wouldn't have shared, you know, back when you were... Like, you know, trying to make sure that everyone thought you were cool. A lot of this stuff in this chat, I reckon, even um, even talking about anything vulnerable, I think. I was so – I was such a sensitive kid in not, – not in like a I was crying all the time way, but I was just like sensitive. I was aware of how people felt all the time and I felt how they felt. Yeah. If someone was sad, I felt sad on their behalf and – Sometimes I would cry, like I'd get emotional at school and overwhelmed and stuff like that. And uh, and I spent all my life trying to cover that up because sensitivity and vulnerability were weakness, especially in Newcastle when I, in the 90s, I guess, when I was growing up. And um, and in my family, like it's just not, not people just aren't vulnerable, you know. Catholics are closed off people. Um and so I guess for most of my life, I've spent kind of pretending that I am a stoic guy who doesn't experience, you know, pain or sadness. <laughs> and it's only been in the last few years that I've even been comfortable talking about that, talking about being a lonely person often as well. Do you well. feel lonely? I think that has been a through line from childhood. I feel it less now. Were you an only child? No, I've got two younger brothers. Yeah. Um, and I can't even really, I haven't been to enough therapy to pinpoint where that lonely feeling well, let's comes from. let's work it out from. now. Let's, <laughs> let's see if we can work it out now. <laughs> I, I think it comes from just being a, a kid who's in his head a lot. And so you feel a bit disconnected from everyone around you, you know. You feel like you're in a bubble sometimes. Are you good in, like, is this a two sides of the coin thing in that like you're often quite good in your own company or is it a very much a like you don't like to be like alone or you feel cut off from people? I'm pretty good in my own company, especially now as a yeah. grown up. I quite like being alone now. But as a kid, I would associate it with um, being a loser, I guess. So mm. you'd be like, oh, fuck, if I'm alone, that means I'm a, I don't have any friends. And then I get stressed about that and, you know, try to be friends with everyone and try to make everyone like me and shit like that. <laughs> Are we just unlocking something in my head right now, actually? Um, I mean, but that is, of course. So yeah. like, how do you get from Newcastle to Sydney? Uh, so I was playing in a band. The band broke up. I was also going out with a girl and she and I split and then she moved to Sydney for work and I wanted to get back with her and mm. we were kind of 
communicating and um, I moved to Sydney to be closer to her and I ended up marrying her. So okay. we got. So, so, it's, so it's, a, it's a fine story, not a horrible story of a guy stalking. Of a guy stalking. Like, it did feel like, like stalking all, for a bit. Oh, all romantic <laughs> stories do. That's the horrible thing. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Yeah. Is this a good, I don't know, you probably, you might have seen this movie and this is not faux fop, so we're not going to get distracted by this, but have you seen the movie Ghosted? The new movie? The new Ghost? movie. No, I haven't Chris Evans it. and yeah. Anna De Armas. De Armas. I saw the ad for it. Yeah. Mm. It is <laughs> like, it's been written by an AI who has 90s sensibilities when it comes to, it is like, I mean, literally the central premise is him flying to another country to like surprise the grand romantic gesture of this girl who's yeah. not responding to his phone call. Like, I mean, it's real bad red flag territory. The whole plot of this film is horrible. But it turns out that someone like you proves that occasionally that works out. If you, you stalk, know. sometimes yeah. it pays off. Folks. It does. <laughs> yeah. So I, but I moved to Sydney to, yeah, be, to sort of, you know, we were starting to rekindle our relationship and we were getting closer together. So I left Newcastle, left the band, moved to Sydney to be closer to her. Didn't really know anyone. I was getting jobs in um, post-production because I'd started a journalism degree, dropped out, and then gone back and finished it as a media production degree. So I learned how to do editing and camera stuff. So I was getting jobs in that. And uh, one of those jobs is at Fox Studios, which is right next to the comedy store. And so, you know, you can see the steps that kind of led me to comedy, I guess. From so there. where was your first gig? Was it at the store? No, but I went and watched gigs at the store yeah. quite a bit when I was working at Fox Studios. And I'm interested in, this is the question that it always comes down to, <laughs> which is, who were you more inspired by? The people who were good or the people who were bad in that? Like, because I often think that often people like what, like go and watch comedy and then you realize that the barrier, the bar of entry is lower than you thought it was, you know? I can, t I can answer definitively. Yeah. It's the, yeah, it's the shit ones, yeah. of course. Like you see a lot of good ones. I remember seeing Ben Elwood early on oh, yeah. and being really impressed with Ben. Um, and Hing too, Michael Hing at a very early gig, being really impressed with Michael Hing. But one of these many jobs that I had in my early twenties was, um, I was working at a theater restaurant. Mm -hmm. I got a job at a theater restaurant as a performing bartender guy. So I had like costume on and makeup mm -hmm. and I was working the bar but then every now and then I would have to run up on stage and sing a song with a bunch of people. Really interesting, bizarre job and time in my life. And there was one guy that worked there called Wade. Don't remember his last name. But he used to tell me all the time that he was a stand-up. Mm. And I never saw him lie, but he would always say, yeah, I'm a stand-up, I've got a gig this weekend, blah, blah, blah. By the time I saw him, I was already a little bit intrigued by stand-up. But I saw him at an open mic in Sydney at, uh, in Chippendale, at a pub in Chippendale. And I remember being so excited to watch someone I knew doing stand-up and then just immediately being like, oh, he sucks. <laughs> He's not good. It just, he was just not good. He wasn't connecting. And I just, that changed everything for me. It was like a whole right. neural pathway opened up where I went, oh, you can just I reckon I could do this. Yeah, I could be bad. Yeah, I could be at least shit. Yeah, if this is what is acceptable, <laughs> I reckon I could at least be this. But it took about another year after that mm. for me to try it. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Bad comics get more people in a comedy than good comics. Totally, so, totally. Um, so you, 
when you are transitioning between, like, you know, one performing art form, because for mm. me, like, stand-up was essentially, I mean, I did high school theatre sports and, mm. you know, I was even in a school musical and those sort of things. But realistically, I wanted to be a stand-up and stand-up was, you know, my entry-level position. But you'd mm. already been performing in other ways. Yeah. So did you feel like it was just something that was going to be part of what you were doing? You were just trying for fun? Like, mm. did, you, did you have a sense that it was a direction that you genuinely, like, might move towards? Like, did what? can you remember what your sense of that was at God. the time? Yeah, it's all, it's all so embarrassing, man. I think, like, I wish I could say that I just thought it would be a bit of fun, but mm. honestly, everything I attempted, I would go in so wholeheartedly, like, this is the new me. Yeah. <laughs> this is my new identity. This is who I am. And like we've covered in this podcast, I've tried a lot of different things. Yes. Um, and even things I haven't even mentioned yet. And every single one of those things I've almost rebuilt my life around and gone, well, I'm this guy now. I'm the musician or I'm the whatever. So comedy, even before I did my first gig, I was already thinking of myself as a comedian, which is so pathetic and embarrassing because I just wasn't good for a long time. But what did that mean to you when you were like in your head, you're like, I'm a comedian. What does that actually mean? Yeah. What does that mean? I guess... I was listening to WTF quite uh, a bit, Mark Marin, so I knew all the lingo. I could say <laughs> <laughs> I could say things like hack and bombing and killing and I don't know. I think I changed my profile picture on Facebook to me with a microphone pretty early on. <laughs> I went in hard, man. And you know, I watched uh, you know, I'd seen the gala every year, so yeah. I'd seen you a bunch of times. I'd seen Husey a lot and uh, and Fleety. You know, I just kind of like almost immediately just wanted to be in that world. Yeah, you people. just had an idea of like, here's this world. I, mm. I like this world. I'd like to be involved in this world. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is often like, I mean, that's what I did. I was yeah. like, I like comedy. Yeah. Comedy seems to happen in Melbourne. I better move to Melbourne. Yeah, <laughs> so, totally. See, see if I can get involved in this racket. Yes. Um, okay. You said there were other things that mm. you also reshaped your life around. Mm-hmm. Like, what what were those things? Well, okay, so, you know, I sort of mentioned this post-production career that I had for a brief period of time. That was after my failed journalism degree. I went back and started doing a media degree. And through that, I fell in love with the, <laughs> the idea of being a director or mm. a screenwriter or something like that. And so I finished that degree. I, it took a long time. It's a three-year degree. It took me like five or six years. Um, and I eventually have this communications degree that I don't use. But <laughs> I, for that time while I was at uni, I really just wanted to be a filmmaker. Yeah. And I would, you know, consi- I would make short films with my friends. Some of them are now currently working in film and television, and that's awesome. They're all very talented. But I was just like, hey, I'm a filmmaker now. I'm going to be Richard Linklater or I'm going to be Kevin Smith mm. or you know, someone like that. Tarantino, obviously, that was a big one. But it's funny when you say Linklater and Kevin Smith before you get to Tarantino, although Tarantino, just a bigger version of the same story. Exactly, Which was like, 
some sort of ordinary non-Nepo baby style. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like you were like, if Kevin Smith, I mean, again. Totally. A lot of people thought if Kevin Smith could do it, yeah. maybe I could do it the as well. The guy worked at a convenience store yeah. and just self-funded his own film. Mm. And I mean, I love all those stories because I can, I project myself onto all of them. I always go, oh yeah, I'm that guy too. Mm. Just a dude from the suburbs who's having a crack. Um yeah, so I I made very serious short films when I was at university. No no comedy at all. It was all just like relationship dramas and I made a very Tarantino-esque one about it's such a Reservoir Dogs ripoff about a couple who've just robbed a bank and they come back to their hotel room where they're stashing the money and they end up getting into a big domestic argument where they're yelling at each other and they set fire to the money and all this shit. It was so just pretentious film school shit, I guess. Um, and then now, now I don't, now I would be humiliated to try anything that sincere and dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're that, when you're 22 or whatever, you don't know. I you mean, know. there's something amazing about it, like yeah. about the naivety or the like, <laughs> Like how lack of knowledge of can be so powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's the problem with getting older is all your definitive opinions go straight out the window. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, rem- I remember writing a short about a couple that were on the verge of breakup mm. and, you know, it was all very intense and relationshipy. And I would have been 23 mm. at the time and I probably had been through one breakup mm. ever. So you got it. I totally got it. <laughs> now I look back on it and go, I should make that now. Yeah. <laughs> I can explain it a little better. Okay, so there was that. Mm. Was there something else as well? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, yeah, I did a lot more writing. I was trying to write, uh, I was trying to get a journalism packet up so that I could eventually have some sort of column. You know, I wanted okay. to have a column in the paper what where it's an opinion of, column. Yeah, what sort of opinions were you going to have? Oh, yeah. Do I don't, I didn't have any at the time, but I like... <laughs> we're going to get those. I wrote, yeah, I wrote for the Sydney Street Press Beat oh, yeah. for ages and I what would... What did you write about in Beat? Yeah, good question. Often it was just like framed as... Because oh, I liked Hunter S. Thompson. Everyone yeah. does, you know. It was just like, hey, here's my musings on what's been going on around the inner west of Sydney over the last few weeks. And often it would just be nothing and I couldn't ever think of an angle. I just, I think I wanted something, but I didn't know how to do it, you know. So that idea of like, I mean, Hunter S. Thompson, obviously, mm. I think like as, I mean, it, to a, to a certain type of journalist or journalism student, Mm. like, you know, people like Hunter are so intoxicating because all the dumb, boring rules of journalism (laughs) get in the way of it being a fun job. He just went, I'm I'm not going to do any of those. It's all going to be about me, mostly. Totally. Which is a real gateway to stand up, I think. Like if you're somebody who was like doing journalism and got into Hunter S. Thompson, the next logical step is, oh, there's a whole other way you can actually be this first person Mm. experiencing the world. And that is stand up comedy really, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Hunter S. Thompson, another thing too, is like, we all think he's dumber than he is. He's actually like a once in a lifetime talent probably. Oh, super smart. And and in no way problematic, I imagine. Don't do (laughs) too much research into it. but. But yeah, so I actually, that just reminded me that I had had written this idea for a what in my head was going to be a Louis Theroux style documentary uh-huh. exploration on 
modern masculinity. This, by the way, I'm 23 yeah. or something, and I haven't done anything. No. But I came up with this idea for a documentary thing, and I met a guy called Brian Moses, who was a TV uh, producer, and I showed it to him, and he went, cool, this is all very interesting, but why would anyone make this? Right. And I went, well, because it's interesting. Because it's an idea. And he was like, but why would anyone mm. make it with you? And I went, oh, I don't know. And yeah. he was like, you're not anyone. And then I believe it was him who said, you, he said, my girlfriend, Laura, Laura Hughes is doing stand-up. You should, um, if you want to do stuff like this, you should start doing stand-up. And I just like started taking it seriously at that point. Yeah. yeah okay. So it, there is that yeah, accessibility of being able to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. I've, it's funny, isn't it? That because uh, I mean, this story's come up so many times recently on this show. But um, there's someone who worked at the theatre uh, that I play every year in Melbourne, and um, they, were, they were saying, "Oh, you've written a book this year." The, mm. the, uh, and they were so impressed mm. by the writing of the book, and all I could think was. You see me do this every year. <laughs> this is heaps harder. Like, <laughs> yeah, I write yeah. a book. I send it out. I don't know. People like it. They don't like it. They <laughs> yeah. half read it. They like – but if people walk out of this halfway through, I see it. Like, you know, this <laughs> yeah. is the hard thing. Why are you That's so, so funny. Impressed? You don't see people put the book down, but you see people get up to leave the theatre. Yeah. That's so like, funny. Just about enough for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get the point. I get the gist. Actually, that's a good idea for how they should sell tickets for comedy shows. If you could come to a show and oh, then yeah. 20 minutes in leave mm. and then you, with that same ticket, you can come back at the 20-minute point the next night. Oh, yeah. So it it's all in shifts. Yeah. And what a <laughs> lovely way for the comedian to enjoy people just coming in at random moments. Like it's hard enough to kind of make sure that the audience is all on the same page, let alone the fact that you're swapping out different segments of oh, the audience. 6.30 crew are coming in. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So when you start going into comedy, if you've thought about it a lot mm. and you're like, okay, well, this is, you know, maybe something that I'm going to do. I'm going to be a comedian, mm. whatever that means. Mm. Did you have any firm comedy philosophies at that point? Was there anything, like like you said, you're listening to a lot of WTF. It's probably a perfect time to form. I always think starting out in comedy is a perfect time to form really firm opinions about <laughs> oh, <yeah>. comedy. <laughs> I had a strict set of rules, <laughs> yeah. I remember. Um, yeah, because yeah, I was listening to a lot of Mark Marin and also Louis C.K. was the biggest comedian yeah. in the world at the time. What happened to him? I don't know. <laughs> 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 what happened to all of them? Oh, man. What happened to all of our heroes? Yeah, I know. It's so gross. <laughs> could just be better. <laughs> it's insane. It's been a crazy few years to go, oh, oh yeah, they're all fallen. Oh, they're all man. pieces of shit. <laughs> you know, and I sometimes do that thing of just going, is this, my, am, am I, is this what's going to happen to me? Because oh, I'm the God. same age. Well, I oh, mean, yeah. Gervais and, like, you know, um, like, Louis is a little bit older and, like, but Chappelle and I are the same age. Yeah, you know? like, yeah. And when you see people just to start lean one particular way or whatever, like yeah. pursue one particular agenda and you're like, oh, is this, yeah. is this me? Totally. What, what's mine? What am I going to be? Like, I remember that exact feeling of thinking like, oh, I wonder, or actually almost every comedian I liked, I tried to do a version of their act essentially. Sure. Well, that's how you start. Yeah. Like I, I definitely ripped you off. I definitely ripped Fleety off. It's okay. On stage. I was mostly ripping Fleety off <laughs> yeah, originally. Yeah. So even by ripping me off, you're ripping Fleety off, kind <laughs> We're of. We're all ripping Fleety <laughs> off. And then there was like a Louis thing where I kind of was deliberately trying to be as vulgar and yeah. um, like 
it's, you know, confessional comedy, but it was all just confessing about masturbating, essentially. Uh, And then Chappelle, too. I would try and do these big flights of fancy, of, you know, crazy, whimsical scenarios. I had a new set of rules every week that I would try to follow. And And actually, I always would say... Comedy is about honesty. Comedy is about honesty. But I never was honest. Mm. I was just doing someone else's version of honesty. Like every set, it was like a new, this is Louis C.K.'s version of honesty. This is Seinfeld's version of honesty. I just never followed it. But I would preach it to everyone. It took me a long time to even get close to honest, you know. And so then, I mean, I think this is why um, Electric Dreams works so well as a show. Like I do think that it's, um, as I sent you a message after I saw it, literally mm. n- the highest compliment I can give. No notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because like normally, even if I've loved something, there's something in my head where I like, mm. and often I won't say it because yeah. like, I don't want to be that person, but there's yeah. always something in my head going, I reckon if you just did this, it'd mm. just be like, but it was, it's such a great show. And I think part of it is it feels very honest. Like, yeah. how does it feel to you when you do a show like that? Because you've mm. had to. You know, like we've talked a little bit about the premise of it anyway, but you're going back, you know, like you said, finding these songs, these diaries, telling this story of your life. And some of it's, you know, it is confessional and embarrassing. Mm. It's the it's your version of the masturbating stories, yeah. but it's much more authentic to you than mm. you trying to be Louis C.K. in that yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Like, yeah. That, that's not the angle that you're taking on this. It's No. It feels much more authentic to the person that I know you to be. Do, do you feel mm. like that? Does it yeah. feel like that show unlocks something in that regard? It certainly does. Yeah. I remember uh, I, I filmed an hour of what I thought was my best material right before the COVID lockdown. Mm-hmm. And my plan was to cut everything up into clips and put it out during this whole, you know, period of time where we couldn't geek. Mm. You and keep mentioning this COVID thing. What is this? COVID-19. It yeah. came out in 2019 okay. and it was huge instantly, okay. really popular. Online though? Is it online? It thing, was right? mainly online. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> it was mainly a Twitter thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, so I started editing this, these clips of my stand-up that I'd filmed at the Enmore, um, that small room at the Enmore, that 100-seater. And... Uh, and I hated it. I hated almost every single one of my bits. Why? Because it was basically a collection of like the last four or five years of my stuff, mm-hmm. what I considered my best bits. And there was just so much disparate types of comedy and disparate even personality types mm-hmm. appearing throughout each bit. Like there's, there was a section where I was doing essentially one-liners, then there was a story, then there'd be a bit that was clearly a lie but it was, you know, deliberately a lie. And then there'd be a really rude bit. And then I was like swearing way too much. And I was making like off color jokes on purpose too much. And I just, I felt so disgusted with myself watching this hour back. There was only a couple of bits I really liked. And one of them was a story from being a teenager. And I liked it because it was just a story and it was discreet and it wasn't relying on shock. It was kind of maybe revealing some emotional embarrassment or emotional truth. And so I just sort of took that as the building block to build out from that the hour came out of. Um, and yeah, I think I, it did feel like I clicked into another gear of revealing something about myself that's funny, but also not trying to be too 
I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Well, I mean, it, the the truth of it is that it just felt like it was you. Yeah. It felt yeah. like here's my story. Yeah. Told in the way, like, because, like, I mean, I think one of the things that I've observed about you, and mm. I hope you take this the right way. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? <laughs> It's always hard to even say anything that people don't think about forever. Um, no, I think like it's something you've talked about a lot on this in, in show in a way, which is mm. like I've often described. So one of the shows that, um, you know, you've worked on for us is, is Gruen. And yeah. um, this year, I don't think this gives too much away. I think and mm. if, if we feel like this is uncomfortable, we can take this out later. But like what one of the great things like – you're not as available this year, which is great, mm. which is very good. I will be but, there for a bit. Well, yeah. Mm. So we're mm. going to have you there for a little bit. Yeah. And But the little bit is the most important bit. Like, you mm. know, like the bit that we've got you for is the bit that we need you for the most, which is like for people who are – it's essentially for studio days, right? Yeah. Because on the day, it's James Colley, myself, you know, whoever the other writers will be, you know, Beck mm. Melrose will be other people. Yeah. But we're just – it's a bit of – fun, yeah. like as we put together like the icing on the cake of the show, you know, as we best find part, it's I the reckon. best part. It's yeah. so much fun. But it's only the best part if you have people who mm. enjoy that process. Yeah, yeah. Like you get there in the morning going, great, this is what we're doing with our day. We spend the entire day. Not every show does that. Like other mm. shows lock off a script in the morning and then they rehearse it during the day. The mm. way I like to work on shows is every rehearsal is an opportunity for us to rewrite. Yeah, rewrite, and change make something, make yeah. it better. Right? Sometimes change the whole fucking thing. Sometimes. Which we've done a couple of times. <laughs> Sometimes. But not be afraid to do that and yeah. trust that you have people there to be able to do that, right? Yeah, it's That's exciting. the truth of it is like mm. – and I've often said about you that one of your great skills is that you you have a chameleonic quality to you, which is whatever the social situation or group is, mm. you can quite easily adapt your rhythm and flow to fit into the thing. So that's yeah. why you, you're so, such a great person in those places. Mm. But I I imagine the downside of that is if you're a person who's so easily influenced by your surroundings or mm -hmm. the company that you're keeping or the situation in which you find yourself, mm -hmm. which can be a real strength. Like I'm doing this side of humor because it suits the person that I'm bouncing off in this forum, but that's very different to the humor I do with this other person because they have a different sense of humor and I... Yep. Like, I mean, what you do with Becky and what you do with Alexi... Mm. It's it's not like it's two different people, mm. but it is two ends of yeah. like you know a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. In the, the approach to comedy, yeah. So for someone like that, it, it strikes me that it would be hard then to go, what is, who am I authentically, right? You just that was perfect. That's exactly right, and that's the big conflict that I've had internally probably over the last three years. Uh, and that was the big conflict I had when I'm, you know, looking through this set of mine and hating it. Cause I just honestly didn't know who I was. And I hated the fact that everything seemed so different and it seemed like I was being different versions of myself for different people. And so really I've just been trying to make everything as the same as I can. And that all that means is like stripping out the artifice and, you know, when you're around Becky Lucas, it's hard not to be a mean little bitchy person yeah. because that's, mean, that's what she brings what out doing. of you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you're around Alexi, it's hard not to be a sweet little sensitive person because that's what he brings out of you. And yeah. I mean, maybe I'm somewhere between both of those things and I'm trying to just come to that. You know? Well, I think that's, yeah. And that's what the show demonstrates better, right? Mm. It feels like a, 
like in each of those things, I get feel like I get a part of you. Yeah. And then in this show, I really felt like a lot of those elements came mm. together at once. It's it's sweet, but it's not overly sweet. Yeah. It's cringy, but it's not overly cringy. It's mm. edgy, but it's not overly edgy. Like yeah, it has yeah. edgy moments without it that, that <laughs> being the point of it. You yeah, know, like, yeah. It's a balance. Oh, okay. that's, that's good to hear. Yeah, thanks. All Did right. You... Well, um, uh, you know, these other questions are going to take ages, so I'm going to start asking All some right, of them. All right, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so, look, we've touched on this a little, but, like, mm. I, it gets more expanded, so I'm going to ask away, which is what do you think happens when we die? Mm. Yeah. I mean, obviously I grew up believing in literal heaven, like yeah. the 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 way you would draw heaven if you were a little boy who mm. went to church. In the clouds, clouds with like some sort of gates, steeples and gates. All and that stuff. shit. Yeah. And yeah. and even like through I remember through high school when What do you did you think happened in heaven? Well, I guess I just thought you kept living life. Yeah. Like you it's another version of life that goes on forever. Um, which is horrifying, horrifying, right? Isn't that terrifying? Just to let think? me rest. Did you ever watch The Good Place, that show? Yeah, loved it. In fact, re-watched it recently. Mm. When I was in Adelaide during the Fringe Festival, yeah. uh, at night, you know, winding down in a, you know, one-bedroom Oaks apartment by yourself at <laughs> yeah, night. Yeah. Like, it's all, I think I often find it's good to have something that you can go, all right, I'm just going to go back and I'm going to watch as many episodes of this thing until <laughs> I... Fall asleep, That's right? all I can do when I'm on the road yeah. with comedy. I just watch Adam Sandler movies and stuff. And I so I rewatched The Good Place, mm. which I had watched when it first came out. So mm. go on. What were you going to say about it? Well, I mean, it'll be spoiling the final episode, but who cares? You know how, like, the idea of the final episode is that, you, the, you know, the afterlife is eternity, but you also have an option to just end it mm. and you're nothing now. That gives me great comfort. I like the idea now that it's just maybe there's something, but mm. also you can choose to have nothing. Yeah. If I was literally faced with that problem that they had in The Good Place where you get to eternity and then you stay there for a few thousand years and you go, all right, I'm done, and you could end it, I'd be happy with that. Mm. But also I probably don't need the thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. I think, you know, now maybe I just I just, I, I hope... I hope there's nothing. I just hope there's no pain. What is it that you like to do that you don't do? Like everyone has something. Mm. Everyone has something that makes them happy or something, and that, but that they just – or don't do enough, mm. you know? I uh, – this is really shallow, mm. but going to the beach probably is something that I say I like doing yeah. more than I do. No, I think that's know? fair. Yeah. I, I grew up opposite the beach, so – I took it for granted my entire life and now I don't live near a beach and I think about the beach a lot and I think how nice it would be to take my dog down there and go for a swim and go for a run and I could do that if I made the effort and just drove the 25 minutes to Coogee but <laughs> I never do. I no, never go. But, uh, but that is, I mean, I get that because I'm just trying to think of what that heaven mm. situation, what is it that I don't do mm. that I would love to do? And like, What is it for you? Uh, well, Reading books, going to the beach, like, I mean, mm. like literally quite a similar thing. Like the yeah. idea of just having like a quiet mm. place near the beach somewhere that I could literally just ocean, yep. read, mm. quiet, live a little kind of quiet life. There is. Yeah. And I could just do that now. We totally could. Yeah. Hey, would you do gigs in heaven if there was a stand up club? I, it's so funny last night, like I, I was backstage and every, like a, you were hosting a show at the Sydney yeah. Comedy Store and I popped in to both see Michael Hing had done it, the show before, which I really enjoyed. And mm. then um, to see the lineup show that you were hosting. Mm. 
And I was backstage. And you know what I love is there are just there's some people who cannot believe that you can be at a comedy room and not want to get up on stage. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, there yeah. are some people that like, they were like, oh, are you getting on? And I was like, no, no, I'm just yeah. here to watch. And I they would look I at me like, you. Yeah. yeah, you. I mean, people say it to me, but there are some people <laughs> that when you explain, no, 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 I'm not, I'm fine, mm. who literally like look at you like, mm. what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, you don't want to get up? You're here. You should jump up. Yeah. Mm. No, I don't I don't need to yeah. do that. I don't think that I would need to do it in heaven. Like, do I mm. need to earn money in heaven? Well, yeah, that's the thing. Where does everything come from? Is yeah. it just, does shit just appear? Because I mean, if shit just appears, then why am I doing <laughs> why am I doing gigs? For love of the art, I don't know. Get to be on the same what? lineup like, with Pryor. What's the point of my art? Like, <laughs> oh yeah, true. Because I'm yeah. in in heaven. So it's if it's for my own pride, yeah, then that's against everything that the joint stands for, yeah, right? That's true. Like you'd think that other people don't need to be mm. like you know my my individual philosophy. Like if this is how I view life and the world. I mean, mm. all those questions have kind of been wrapped up, to be honest. Mm. So it's hard for me to do social commentary about the nature of existence <laughs> when we've already got an answer to the question. Yeah, yeah. And then otherwise it's going to feel like bitching, right? Yeah, true. Ever like ordered something magic in heaven and it took a while to, t- like you're like, suddenly that, you know, the people in charge are going to hear about that, that you're not happy with like, you know. Oh, uh, what about this idea yeah. of like your energy just getting redistributed back into the earth, All like right, the Lion sure. King thing? Who cares? What do you think of that? Like whatever. You don't give a fuck. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Maybe. Good luck to you. Yeah. I mean, as long as I don't have to do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. No, you're in charge. You have to dis- no, disperse your energy. Sign up to a new energy. <laughs> like it's like a whole thing. It's like a lot of paperwork. Just yeah. before you're done, you've got to choose the eight places your energy goes to. <laughs> now, I think that. Um, Sure. Like, you know, mm. in a scientific way, you know, we're made of energy. Yeah. Energy doesn't d- disappear when someone mm. dies. It just gets turned into a different type. I mean, that is true. In yeah. A, yeah. Like in a very simplistic way. But um, if I'm unaware of it, like I, I have this attitude more in general to the whole society. What mm. I don't know doesn't hurt me. Mm. Like in a general sense, it's like it's one of the ways that I have enjoyed being a comedian and kept liking comedians is knowing that as a comedian, we all bitch about each other. We mm. bitch about the people we love as much as we bitch about the people we hate. Like, I mean, it's just part <laughs> yeah. of the language of being a comedian, yeah. right? Right? Yeah. You know, and I can roll my eyes at a joke of someone who I love <laughs> not ordinarily. It's just part of the fun of, you know, who we are. Yeah. But you've got to accept that like if you're doing that, other people are also doing that about you, right? Yeah, totally. If I don't know, yeah. Very comfortable with that, right? Because you know it exists, mm. but I also – I hate to hear about it. Like, yeah, of course. I don't need to know. Yeah. And I think it's the same with like in a broader conceit. It's like – With the afterlife. Yeah, I don't need to yeah. – I don't need to know. If I don't need to if, – if I'm not involved, mm. I don't really care what happens then from here on. That's a good – I think that's a good attitude to have because I'm sure there will come a time in my future where I become very invested in – answering that question and wanting to know a little bit more about it. But mm. for now, I'm not there. So I'm just happy for it to be nothing and there's no pain and it's done and this is it. What would, yeah, okay. So like like you said, there might be a point, you know, when it becomes a more compelling mm. thought in your mind or mm. you lose more people or any of those sort of things that you start to think about it again. Mm. Um, this is a question that Kurt Bronola asked uh, Pete Holmes on his podcast. Mm. That's my little att- attribution for the fact that I've absolutely <laughs> lifted this question, but I love it. Uh, which is this. 
Would you rather know when you die or how you die? Oh, yeah. Um, fuck. I mean, obviously neither, but how, I guess, I guess, shit, that's so funny to think of actually now you think about it. Because if you get how, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> then you're just like, well, when's that going to happen? Talking out and having the, like, the thought experiment is the point of this question. Yeah. So tell me, like, yeah, I'm happy for you to work it out in front of me. Yeah. Right? Well, so I was just, what were you going to say about how? My instinct was yeah. going to be I'd rather know how I yeah. die so that I could just avoid yeah. being on a bus or whatever the fuck fun, it is. Right? But now I'm like, when's that going to happen? Yeah. yeah. It could be, be any time from now right. to the end of So time. you were going to avoid going on a bus. Or whatever Inconveniently yeah. your <laughs> entire life. Like, when, when it when you're going to die at 97 but, driving the bus. <laughs> you know, like. But also it's like these are things that are already sort of our reality. Like yeah. you get taught, told, hey, if you smoke cigarettes, you will die. Uh-huh. So I just avoid cigarettes, right? Um, if you hold a gun to your head, it will kill you. Cool. I'll avoid doing that. I guess if I had to – I don't want to know either of them, but if I had to know either, it would be when so that I could have a fucking – good time while before that happens, I guess. Yeah. The timeline gives you some sort of context for your yeah. life. I think you would make different decisions based on the timeline. Mm. The one about how and whether you'd avoid it is very interesting to me because mm. like COVID has shown us that there are degrees of how much we will avoid something even if we know that it will kill us, right? Mm. Like, I mean, as you said about cigarettes, like there are people who still smoke cigarettes. Like, yeah, we know. You know, despite the fact that we know that that is, you know. And eating junk food. Right. And, and there's, everything. you know, COVID things that people have mm. absolutely overlooked. So there's a part of me that thinks if you found out you were dying in a bus accident, at the start you'd be like, never catching a bus again. Mm-hmm. And then like a couple of years later, the only convenient place to get from one place to the other would be a bus. And you'd be like, it's yeah. probably not it's this It's just bus, a short right? trip. This yeah. is a short trip. Like, it's not going to get above 40. How could it possibly be yeah. this bus, We'd right? treat it like drugs. Yeah. We'd be like, I'll dabble. Yeah. I'll hang out at the bus stop, you right. know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know people die of drug overdoses, but probably not me right now Yeah, in this instance. And you'd start, like, drawing the line about what a bus is. You'd be like, mm. oh, yeah, well, a double-decker bus, like a is tourism that a, bus, yeah. that doesn't count as I a don't bus. Think, I yeah, don't they think. would have specified that. Yeah. This is fine, I think. <laughs> it's a minivan at best, I believe, is what this is. I reckon it's – yeah, I reckon I'd rather know when. Um, and I think it all comes down to the – like, we all want to – we all want – we all work best with a deadline, mm. you know? If you were, um, say say it was five years from now. Mm. Say that's what you hear. Five years. Shit. Yeah, I reckon that's a troubling amount of time. Yeah, five years that's because so it's, soon. Yeah, but, but not soon enough. <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? yeah. <laughs> like, you've probably not got five years of pure just partying and, yeah. like, you know, spending all your money up your sleeve, I imagine, right, post-COVID. Yeah. Like, no way. So I'd have to work. You'd have to work. <laughs> Even knowing the fact that you're going to die in five years. It's like, so if you found out it was going to be five years, yeah. how does your life change, do you Shit. think? You know what? I reckon I, I'd, uh, I'd probably move back to Newcastle yeah. and maybe even move into my parents' house rent-free, so I'm saving money mm-hmm. there. Um, and I'd just do... I'd probably just try and live a relaxing five years, mm. I reckon. You parting, do? I think you my think parting days like, are yeah. done, yeah. Like, so you'd just be like, I'm just going to relax. I think I'd do some do some creative things that I enjoy doing. Yeah. Maybe I'd try and get one more big project out before I go, something like, you know, like the podcasts that mm. I've done with Alexi or something like that. 
maybe, uh, and then I'd probably just try and chill and have fun and live near the beach and eat good food and um, hang out with my wife and dog. I reckon I'd honestly slow down. Yeah. Five it's, years. It's interesting, know? isn't it? Yeah. What do you think you'd do? I mean, I, I'd be wrapped if I get another five years. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I know I'm interested in the idea of doing another project. So, because mm. I think the the real the realistic answer to me is there are two different me's. One mm. of them is the person who craves this life where I could be by the beach and read all these books, and you know I already mm. have the books. Like mm. it's not like I even have to go and buy the books. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. I've got so many unread books in my house that <laughs> yeah. I could literally just take two years and go and live by a beach and read those books. Totally, and it could happen now. And as someone who doesn't think that there is anything after this mm. and has no real interest in being remembered, mm. I am really devastated to say that I think I would probably just keep working because yeah. I don't know what else that it, like, I think that I would be, I'd be like, you know what? I got some other, I got a lot of Will Punch show titles I've got to get through. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well. Trying to burn through see, see how many of these we can get out before I'm done. Um, so what about you? Because it's fun though, right? Like but, doing it. Yeah. A- Work is fun. Like you're, you're lucky, and maybe I am too. In that, it's a, being a creative person for a living is pretty enjoyable. It's not, it's not like a. It is a slog in a way, but it's not the slog of um, the jobs that we've done in the past. Like if you just had to do five more years of being a journalist, you'd probably hate that. But you do get to do five more years of writing about whatever the fuck you want to write about and talking, making people laugh, improvising, pretty good. Do you care about being remembered? No, I used to. I thought about it all the time because, you know, when you're 20 and you think about your heroes who are gone, you think about their legacy. But I don't know, no one gets remembered. You know, in 100 Mm. years' time, will anyone remember David Bowie? Probably not. I mean, Bowie, maybe. Bowie's one of the greats. He's like yeah. a hero of mine, but I but don't it's know. It's only going to be like Bowie and Prince and, yeah. you know, it'll be a handful of it'll people. Be it's not going to be, yeah. you know, no one's remembering the killers. <laughs> exactly. You know? Which like, is a shame because they're, they're pretty good. They're, I mean, they've had a good career. You know what I <laughs> mean? Like you can't <laughs> complain if you're the killers. Yeah, yeah. But in a hundred years, probably no one's remembering the killers. Like no one gets remembered. And yeah. even in, in stand-up. People barely remember the people that we consider icons like Lenny Bruce or Carlin or whatever, you know? Well, and the other problem is that, like, you know, as we know with comedy in particular, Mm. being remembered isn't always the best thing. True. Because sometimes there's going to be something you said that through modern eyes is going to seem either. I mean, like, if you've tried to listen to Lenny Bruce, like Lenny Bruce. I can't. One of the people who invented what we know as stand-up comedy Mm. now. Mm. But it's unlistenable. Truly unlistenable. By modern comedy standards. I bought a bootleg DVD of a Lenny Bruce concert, Mm. and it's literally him just going through court papers. Court papers. Uh, It's horrible. Nothing funny about it. I was like, this is the guy everyone's obsessed with? Yeah, I don't, I don't care about being remembered by the public, but as long as you're remembered by your friends and family yeah. for good reasons, like, God, we had some good laughs or whatever, that's, that's awesome. That's all I want. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you could have any superpower, mm. like, uh, you know, so magic wand style scenario, you can just be really, really good at something. 
It doesn't have to be like a superpower, superpower. I mean, you can be really good at playing piano or you can be oh, yeah. really good at speaking another language mm. or whatever it might be. But, you know, you can be really good at one thing. You don't have to train to do it. Mm. Literally, it's a wake up and you can just do this thing scenario. What would mm. you like to be really good at? Maybe I'm, this is how susceptible I am. But as soon as you said play piano, I thought I'd like to be able to play every instrument. Yeah. And even, I don't think I'd even try to monetize it. I just think for myself, mm. it would be awesome to live in a house full of musical instruments that I could pick any of them up and just play. That would be great. Yeah. There is something quite amazing about the, like, people who can play different instruments in a band. It's so good. To this day, still find it. Yeah. I, I, there's a, just a part of me that, like, you know, when you go and see Radiohead <laughs> and Johnny Greenwood's just, like, playing nine different things and you're like, this is great. I or know. the early unproblematic days of Arcade Fire I when know. they would all. God, they, he went down too, didn't yeah. he? Another one. <laughs> Yeah, when they would swap instruments and they'd be pulling out like 18th century instruments too. I always thought that was awesome. It'd be great. I always just thought it would be cool to even just be able to, and I would never do this now, but if you walked into a bar and there was a piano there and you could just sit down and play and not sing or anything, you're just doing some nice music in the background and everyone's like, oh, cool, I didn't know he could play piano. Yeah. I've always thought that would be great. That's a good answer to that question. I like it. Uh, Mate, this has been really fun. So people... Can find give us give us the plugs. Where do people start at the moment? Like, mm. what do you want them to you know check out? Focus on. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I I'm always touring, doing stand up, and I put the dates up on my Instagram, which is at I am Cameron James. So I'll be around. I'll be traveling around quite a bit, probably working on a new show, new hour. Um, and if you want to hear me on a podcast, I have a podcast with Becky Lucas called the Becky and Cam Show which is just us talking shit. And uh, if you're interested in me being curious about things, me and my friend Alexi Toliopoulos have uh, two series of a podcast, Finding, Finding Drago and Finding Desperado, where we investigate things that we find fascinating. And we've got a web series version of it called Finding Yeezus on YouTube as well. That's probably all the things I'll say. We spoke on Fofop, uh, which is another podcast that uh, I have. You can find it on the Tofop feed, tofop.com. Uh, but on the Tofop feed uh, or on the old Fofop feed, you can look at, uh, up the Cam episodes, and I talked to Cam and Alexi about the show. But that, So we talked about it when it was coming out. Mm. Finding Yeezus? Finding Yeezus. Yeah. Uh, but right. we haven't had, like, a catch-up about that since. Like, what mm. was the – how did you feel about the whole project at the end of it? Like, mm. I mean, you know, like, I remember we had a conversation very much at, you know, you'd worked on this thing, it was going out into the world, you know, you were seeing that people were discovering it, you were – like, it's a mystery, you know, that mm. is unfolding, so the mystery itself is unfolding and you're getting towards some sort of actual resolution to this story. Like, mm. what's been – what, what yeah? What's what's happened since, or like what's yeah? When you look back now and reflect on the project, like mm. what do you think? I think um, those finding projects are big. They're so important to me. Mm. They've helped me not only become a better writer or creator, but also just like a a better human, maybe because I'm just like constantly engaging with other people's stories and listening to their stories. So I, I learned a lot from finding Yeezus. I learned a lot of like from, uh, you know, like meeting Clara, um, learned a lot about, you know, someone else's experience and reflecting on that. And it, it's been, it's been really good. I've, it, it awoke something in me, which is just, I want to keep 
I want to keep helping other people uh, express their story, no matter how, whatever that is, whether it's through a documentary thing or whether it's helping other people write projects or whatever. I quite enjoy working with other people in that way and helping them get their, you know, their narrative arc out or whatever. Um, in your uh, show, Electric Dreams, you talk about uh, meeting Daniel Johns mm, in, in various different ways. Yeah. And you actually said in the show that there is another story of meeting Daniel Johns <laughs> yeah, that yeah. you couldn't fit in the show. Like, <laughs> yeah. is that a story you can tell on a podcast or is that something you've got to tell me in five minutes from now when we stop <laughs> recording? Uh, you know, it's um, complicated. I okay, might have to tell you minutes. off air. That's fine. I just, <laughs> just occurred to me. I don't really mind as long as I get to hear it. Yeah, I'll tell you off That's air. all I really want to know. Like, it's like, come on, people. We've we've done some hard work here. So here's yeah. the final question. Uh, oh, if people want to see me, I'm touring, you know, still some places all over the country. I'm really enjoying this year's show. So um, I keep adding dates. Uh, so there are more appearing at comedy.com.au. My book is called I Am Not Fine, Thanks. Uh, and my uh, last year's special is called Logical is uh, available for free on ABC iView. Oh, it's such a good watch, by the way. Everyone oh, yeah? should watch it. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Oh, thanks, man. Great I appreciate show. that. Yeah. It's funny, I was saying to someone the other day, oh, to Chris Ryan, that mm. that show never existed like that. Mm. Like, I mean, this is the weird thing about, like, that version of the show mm. is probably the best version of the show, even though mm. there's, like... There's a routine about why Joe Rogan is afraid to suck his own dick that is like one of my favorite things I've ever written, but it just couldn't make the cut. It it wasn't like the thing. And (laughs) it was actually, but the start of the show isn't in the special. Because mm. we had to cut it to 60 on the yeah, night, I did yeah. like 75. Yeah. So literally the first five minutes that was in the show when I was doing it live isn't in the special. So the huh. version the version that the most people will see, the one that's on ABC iView, that version of the show was actually never performed. Yeah. Which that's I, interesting. It's weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I think that's cool. I, I remember mm. talking to you before you mm. started touring it and you were, that was the show I think you said you you pretty much had just written it as you wanted to write it yeah. without testing stuff out. That's so, and I was so inspired by hearing that. That's such I, a cool, tr- like, trust in yourself there. Well, I did it again this year, um, mm. and I like it yeah. because I think that, like, I had a friend come and see the show this year, and they said, you know what I liked the most about it was that often you introduce an idea that your audience wouldn't necessarily think is the side of, like, I've got a big routine about why we should edit more of Roald Dahl in the show. And, like, they said, like, my friend was like, the, the thing I love about it is that you comedically, because it's a comedic convincing of why that is the yeah, case, right? Yeah, yeah, And I don't think I would have, if I was in rooms and clubs and whatever, that material would have been shaped by mm. the predominant reaction of people to, Absolutely. like, what they thought, which, mm. you know, whereas... Because I was writing it in isolation and I was like, here's what I want to try and do. Mm. What that then means though sometimes is you hit the ground and you have to, like I reckon the first half of Adelaide, Mm. like I have this whole piece that's in favour of the people (laughs) who are throwing food at art. Again, Mm. another topic that no one, like even people at my show is not on board with those protests. Yeah, yeah. And I would just like have to be determined night after night to go, I'm going to get this to the point where this works. Like it's not working yet like you know so anyway well, I think it's great it's such a good way for you to work I think I think where I'm at now mm. that's where I, I don't I don't want it to be focus grouped mm. yeah I don't like there is a point in comedy where yes of course like there is that point of like here's what the audience think or here's what like whereas I want it to be you, like sometimes it's about 
finding a way you can connect that idea with the audience. Like I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying mm. get up there and ignore the audience. Like I want them, they're, they're going to get the message better if they're engaging in it yeah. properly, right? Yep. But that, that my trick is not to get rid of the idea or this hard thing I'm trying to do. The trick is and to go, how do I yeah. unlock this better? It's easier to throw away your convictions right. in favour of the audiences, yeah. which is, uh, I've done that so much in the past. Oh, no, we all do that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not even saying there isn't still part of that. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I had this joke that is not in the Roald Dahl thing anymore that I held mm. on to for way too long, <laughs> which because I was talking about Salman Rushdie um, uh-huh. and how he was one of the people who said it was absurd censorship, and I said, so I had this joke about how um, uh, Satanic Verses, mm. you know, the Salman Rushdie yep. book, uh, was a direct sequel to Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes, <laughs> and it is one of those things that to me, because it just sounds so right, like Revolting <laughs> yeah, Rhymes, great. Satanic Verses, like, yeah. would make me laugh endlessly. <laughs> yeah. The audience, not convinced, never really found a way to convince them that it was a good joke. Oh, uh, yeah. And eventually, way too long afterwards, I was like, you know what? Actually, this bit and this show is better without me holding on to this dumb idea. Oh, uh, yeah. Because it unlocks the rest of it better. Mm. So I'm not saying that, like, it, like audience feedback can be a really good thing, mm. but I'm not going to drop an idea that I like mm. just because I can't immediately connect it with an audience. Like, the yeah. job is finding a way to connect it with the audience. I think so, too. Even last night after that show that I was hosting, mm. I came off stage and thought, yeah, I just didn't articulate the premise of one of those bits clear enough. Yeah. So it took the audience longer than it should have for them to even get on board with what I was talking yeah. about. So I'd spent the whole backstage being like, what's the quickest way I can say that up top? Just so they're with me. Right. And then they'll come along for the rest of Yeah. Because they, they will come along. Yeah, they will. If you presented them to yeah. in a way that they can understand totally. how to come along. They don't even have to agree. They just no. will go, oh, that's what he's talking about. Yeah. Now let's hear what that's the fine. jokes are. I understand <laughs> what, we're, what we've got to do here. <laughs> yeah, now. yeah. So I have a time machine. Um, I can take it at any point in history. It is oh, a yeah. return trip, but you can also go into the future. So this mm. is um, – th- so the first question is really do you want to go forward or backwards, I guess. So – if someone offers you a trip on a time machine, do you immediately think you would go backwards or forwards? I think backwards. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you think you would visit something in your own life or just something throughout history? Well, I mean, I'm very fascinated by things that I, you know, like I like looking at old photos of Newcastle mm. from the ni- early 1900s and stuff like that. But, you know, if you've got the time machine... I'm not just going to go back to Newcastle. I mean, it would be it would crazy. Seem, <laughs> it seemed that like, what happens when you're going to die? Go back to Newcastle. Yeah. What, what happens with the time machine? Probably I go go and check out what Newcastle was See like. See what was going on ago. in New Beach. Yeah. Um, no, I mean obviously I would travel further than Newcastle. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, Toronto or somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to go. I'd go back to the past. Yeah. You know, I'm fascinated by the '70s and the '60s, just like everyone is who's into music. I think it would be fucking awesome. I reckon it would be really sick to go back to like a (laughs) 70s, you walk into a music session. Uh, By the way, I'm assuming I get a triple A pass everywhere with this time machine. Yeah, sure. Why not? So I can walk into just any scenario that that I know. I'm fine with that. I could just walk into like a Beatles recording session. I feel like the time machine's going to like appear you in the room. Okay, I'm in there. And all the Beatles are off their head on drugs anyway. So if you appear and step out of some sort of time machine in the corner, they'll they'll be like, all right. What was that? Let's hear him out. (laughs) (laughs) He's got some ideas for songs. (laughs) 
I mean, it would be great to go back and check out some of that stuff as what's yeah. happening, right? Uh, what, yeah. what, where would you go? I don't know. I ask the questions. True. I don't answer the That's questions. true. Can't. That's a fair point. Right? Yeah. I'd, uh, go, I'd go back to a, a Beatles recording session and sit in there and just go, guys, have you considered maybe going to an A minor there instead of an A major? <laughs> just try and make just, slight tweaks to their just songs. Like, just, and ones that you get back to the future and, hey, Jude, just sounds... Oh, it's just la, off. La, 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 la. <laughs> uh, That's the one change so, I make. So, yeah. What about instead of nah, you go with la. And oh. somehow that leads to a whole new universe where Hitler's yeah. somehow still alive. <laughs> killing it. Uh, <laughs> Hitler's it. killing it. And Hey Jude is sung with a la, la, la. And otherwise, it's pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did not ask this one. That's normally the final question, but I, I did not ask this question, and I'm going to circle back on it and see if you've got an answer for it, which is this. Um, what is the best or worst piece of advice that you've ever got? So it can be um, a, a, a genuinely good piece of advice that, you know, that is something that mm. informs you. It could be something that you at once thought was a good piece of advice, but now you think is a terrible piece of advice. It might be something that you always thought was a terrible piece of advice, but... <laughs> I'm interested. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. I've gotten so much advice and I've, I, I always ask advice. I love hearing, uh, I love hearing tips of, of just how to like <laughs> survive. Mm. Man, nothing's coming to mind immediately though. What if I went the opposite then? Mm. If I ask you, there's some, you know, comedian setting out on their journey. They're where mm. you were 15 years ago now, right? Yeah, yeah. And... Like, have a look back on, you know, Cameron James and what the last 15 years have been like. Mm. What advice would you give to the person who was starting out now? Well, I have recently been giving some advice to some up-and-coming mm. comedians um, because they've asked it. I haven't just gone over to them and gone, here's what I think you should do. Mm. Like, I, I guess I'm, I've now been around just long enough that people who are just starting, I seem like I'm, a, I'm a, an old man mm -hmm. um, in the scene. And I think it's actually really similar to what you were saying at the start, which is just try everything while no one's watching, you know? Like if you get three or four years or more in the open mics where no one's got eyes on you and there's no expectations. That's good. Literally try it, it all. Use it. It's 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 all draft. Don't try to get eyes on what you do mm. too early. Yeah, too because early. I guarantee you you're not as good as you think you are. No, like, no God no. And like, too many eyes on you too early can hurt you. Yeah. Because yeah. you can like learn how to do it first. Yeah. Yeah. And also learn how to suck at it and learn how to yeah. walk away from ideas. Learn and... how to try something that might not work. Learn mm. how to fail. Yeah. Learn how to fail. Uh. I think, yeah, that's probably where I'd land. And that's what I, I say to people. And then, and then I check out their Instagram yeah. and they've uploaded six clips that week. Yeah. And I go, okay, well, they didn't take it. They that take that, I, that happened to me quite a lot for a while where some young comedian would send me like a link to their YouTube clip and say, <laughs> can you watch this and give me some notes? And my first note would always be, Take this off YouTube. Like that would be my first piece of advice because I've got proper comedy specials that I would wish I could take off YouTube. Like you oh are definitely going to regret. Oh, dude. When I was a year and a half into stand-up, a group of people decided to make a documentary series for YouTube about Sydney open mic. Oh, I remember. Me and Ben Elwood are in it, mm -hmm. a few other people. I was so new. And they, they filmed so many of my sets. Right. And a lot of that is up on YouTube. 
And a lot of it is really bad, <laughs> problematic stuff. Oh, no. Because I was going through a real edgy phase. Yeah. yeah. So there's stuff about like, I don't even want to list the things no. that it's about, but it's, I've had people even message me recently. People like, it got a real bump out of this podcast. <laughs> people are like, oh, thank God, well, where is it? Where I'm not going to say the name of it. But I've had people message me yeah. and other com- younger comedians be like, hey, I watched that thing. That's mm, really, rank, really gross real, stuff. <laughs> real bad. <laughs> Like, I was so new and I was trying stuff. I don't know. I don't stand by any of it. What do we do with this, though? Because, like, part of the reason that I was talking to someone the other day and they were talking about, like, Triple J still. Like, you Mm. know, and it's been 20-plus years since Adam and I left, Mm. let alone, you know, when we were actually doing the show. And uh, But people still remember it very fondly. And part of the reason that people remember it fondly is that the myth of it is much better than the reality of it was. Like, Mm. people remember it. They don't yeah. have evidence of it. Mm. If there was hours and hours of that show that people could listen to, they would realize how much of it was just absolutely terrible. You know? <laughs> like, and so how do you in this world where everything is being recorded? Yeah. Like, I mean, this is hard, I think, for, mm. for this next generation of people. Is like how do you like learn how to do what you do yeah. like when you're making all your mistakes in public? Privately, yeah. Well, yeah, that'll be curious to see. I mean, I don't know. I don't put, I don't put as much... I don't put that much stuff of mine up, but a lot of people do. I see younger comedians putting up two or three clips a week, yeah. you know, of crowd work or jokes and I don't know, maybe it works for them in that way and maybe it's not even about the legacy of the bit. It's just about the hits in the moment and growing yeah. the audience. I don't know. It'll be curious to see. Maybe I'll look back in five years and realise I was wrong and I should have been doing that all along. Yeah. When that problematic stuff really kicks off. Yeah. And you're doing your cancelled tour, <laughs> cancelled arena tour. The show is going to be called Triggered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cam, thank you very much for doing the show. Thanks for having me. Listener.